Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Northern Lights and the Golden Compass. Our guests for this episode were Ian and Megan Hopwood. Tonight on a very special episode, we are going to delve deeply into one of our favourite books of all time, the rich, complex Northern Lights by Philip Pullman, first instalment of the trilogy named His Dark Materials. These books were one of the major inspirations behind my own series of alternate history sci-fi novels, as well as deciding what was going to be the name of our firstborn. If it wasn't Lyra, it was going to be Will. As we go, we will be discussing the first and only cinematic adaptation named for the American title of the same book, The Golden Compass. To differentiate between the two, we're going to be calling the book by its English title and the film by the American title. We're going to go through the story section by section and note how the movie and book handle things differently. Once we're done with this episode, I'm going to strongly and heartily suggest that every single one of you guys reads the book and then moves on to the follow-up, The Subtle Knife. I'm currently reading them to Lyra right now, and she's dying to know what happens to her namesake next. The film was something we'd been waiting for for many years, Sharon and I. We were praying it would be of a quality and depth approaching the Lord of the Rings trilogy. New Line, the same production studio, were clearly hoping that the films would be of a profitability approaching the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And when that failed to be the case with the first movie, for reasons we will go deep into tonight, they called a halt and left Lyra's story very much unfinished. Now we have three audiences to cater to here. Big fans of the book, who will be in the minority. Those who have only seen the film, and most likely didn't think that much of it, who will be in the majority. And a contingent of people who have neither seen the film nor read the book. We're going to have to focus on that majority in the middle in order to get the most accessible, appealing show and explore the untapped depths of the source book to flesh out this shallow movie. Because as always on School of Movies, we pretty much suggest that you watch whatever we're covering each week before you listen to what we have to say about it. So in this case, watch The Golden Compass. Only in some rare occasions do we say, no, 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 listen to what we have to say first, it'll make it better, like Zardoz. Or, you never have to watch this movie ever, like Aliens vs. Predator Requiem. Hopefully those who have never seen it will pick up the story and character beats as we go and the fans of the book will find a ton of detail and perspective on the elements that they already love. There's a teeny tiny minority who actually saw the movie and loved the movie. It's okay to love this movie, but you can also probably understand as we go along why it's at the very top, the tippity top, but one of my most resented and lamented movies. This goes beyond hate. It's all about the biggest opportunities missed. Avatar, that's The Last Airbender, not James Cameron's, has not one but two amazing animated series to watch. World War Z has only the amazing audiobook since the wretchedly bland film is nothing to do with the book. Even if you liked the World War Z movie, you would have liked it if it was called Saint Pitt and the Plague of Infected. The World War Z license was misused and wasted in a way that makes it nearly impossible to resituate in a broad cultural historical sense. The movie is what it is now. That's why it's the worst for me. Golden Compass comes second until the BBC can pull its ass from the fire and make something with the power of, say, a Game of Thrones. But for a Harry Potter audience. Side note, we recorded this podcast a year ago when the BBC were in production and planning for the His Dark Materials TV show. They're still in production and planning. This tells me it's never going to happen. I'll talk about it 
when it's on my TV screen. So please can no one contact me with, what do you think about the BBC TV show? It doesn't exist. It's a Schrodinger's TV show. Fair warning, there's going to be some religious discussion in this episode, speaking of Harry Potter. By virtue of the fact that there's a big chunk of it threaded throughout the books, I'll state for the record here that being religious is fine with me. Believe whatever you want. I have zero interest in convincing anyone of the existence or non-existence of any deity. However, the church groups that hate these books and have campaigned against them time and again also boycotted the movie and called for all Christian Americans to do the same, despite all themes and mention of theology being stripped from the film. This directly contributed to a weaker domestic release, something that may have been mitigated if the movie had been fantastic. One thing I recall sharply in the long wait for this to be released was an Empire Magazine article on its production. It was made very clear that this was to be the next step forward in cinema fantasy. One that, while definitely accessible to children, was conveyed in a non-patronising manner with adults in mind. The whole family would be catered for, but not just dumb kids or long-time hardcore fans. This is something that, given the age of the superhero that sci-fi was about to evolve into, Marvel managed and DC failed at. So after watching, I projected back to that article a year beforehand in Empire and wondered what the hell happened. It is an alternate history taken seriously where the fantastical is handled in an everyday manner whilst still being mysterious and exciting for the reader. And from the sound of the pitch, that was the intention with the film. Unfortunately, the whole script is bogged down with characters explaining the mechanics of the world to the protagonist to such an extent that their motivation is relegated to a line or two each and any character depths are dispensed with in favour of brevity, thus making this a very different experience to the book. And also, as a sideline, that makes re-watching it painful because you're having stuff explained to you and it's just stuff you already know. It's fatal. This is the reason I can't watch Inception very often, because they spend the whole movie explaining it. On the printed page, and in the superb audiobooks, Lyra's world is leapt into for the first section with no explanation whatsoever that you are on an alternate Earth. After that, Philip Pullman, as the God-perspective narrator, fleshed out the city of Oxford that Lyra lives in in sumptuous detail, not outlining the differences between our world and hers, trusting you, the reader, to be able to paint that picture in your head and make your own explanations. The film starts with a blow-by-blow 101 of the basics of where we are, what a demon is, which specific peoples live in this world that Lyra will imminently encounter. There are many universes and many Earths parallel to each other. Worlds like yours, where people's souls live inside their bodies. And worlds like mine, where they walk beside us as animal spirits we call demons. Are we going to see the child? I should think so. So many worlds, but connecting them all is dust. Dust was here before the witches of the air, the Egyptians of the water, and the bears of the ice. The Lord of the Rings opening prologue explained a hell of a lot of very dense Middle-earth history in one elegant seven-minute sequence. 
This lays down the physics of the world which can most definitely be shown to you, thus making it redundant. It babies the audience. Oh, hey, guess which other movie had a far worse opening narration that basically said the same thing four times? A hundred years ago, all was right with our world. Prosperity and peace filled our days. The four nations, water, earth, fire, and air nomads lived amongst each other in harmony. Great respect was afforded to all those who could bend their natural element. Honestly, if I could equate my frustration with uh, how these films are handled into a sound rather than words, this would just be four hours of screaming. But let's be more detailed than that. Not a word is wasted. However, far from being economical, this feels like a tutorial. Annoying, unskippable, hand-holding, bearing all the mysteries of the book up and explaining them as one would to a child. It sets the tone for how the film continues for the next hour and 50 minutes, in what feels like a hop, skip and a jump tour through Lyra's world, with, somehow, an achingly slow series of uninspired explanations. The book takes great pains to detail differing cultures as we encounter them, and Lyra adopts and mimics, to some degree, each one, as she passes from carer to captor to different carer in her journey, effectively as she goes along, crafting new families for herself. There are definitely times when the book drags for me, but the language employed is so precise, so elegant and evocative that it always feels like a languorous expedition rather than being bodily run through a replica of another world. With the movie, you can see the veneer, and it looks sumptuous. With the book, you are aware of what lies behind the doors, nestled within the travelling bags, what each room smells like, and, in methodical fashion, what propels each person forwards. For me, as not much of a reader, and being so visually and audio dependent, the book can't be perfect, though it does come very close. Because of the languor, because of its density, it's long and takes a while to digest. The film is far too light and empty and short. What I hoped for originally, and what we may one day see, is an ideally paced, wonderfully detailed screen adaptation that makes shrewd decisions on tone and what to focus on. This movie was always going to be a gamble. New Line invested $180 million and left the sequel's production contingent on the box office performance of the first. See, this is a far cry from The Lord of the Rings, which shot them to the big time. For comparison, Fellowship of the Ring cost a slender $93 million portion of the overall three-way pie of that trilogy. But the Two Towers and Return of the King were already in production. That train was rolling and nothing could stop Weta, who were working morning, noon and night for many, many years to accomplish a shared goal. And listen to our episodes on the Lord of the Rings trilogy if you want to hear incredibly detailed accounts of exactly how meaningful every single scrap of second of those movies are. Weta were a fledgling New Zealand film company that had a lot to prove and an amazingly talented staff. A trilogy like that will almost certainly never happen again. Not under those same circumstances. There'll always be that precedent that they set. Golden Compass certainly retained talent. The casting, effects work, model work, wardrobes and sets were all provided by industry greats. But crucially, there was no godfather, no overview, no passionate creator pulling everything together. The script was originally drafted by Tom Stoppard, then written from scratch in a second version by American Pie and About a Boy director Chris Weitz. He avoided reading any of Stoppard's draft in case he inadvertently used any of it. 
Weitz was on for director until he visited the set of King Kong to learn from those with experience in exactly this field and realised he just wasn't Peter Jackson. Even Peter Jackson isn't Peter Jackson. He couldn't do this. He walked. He left. And New Line brought in Anand Tucker, who drafted a third script which focused on Lyra's search for a family. Eventually, though, Tucker clashed with the studio who wanted one thing, a big, glitzy fantasy for all the family, and required his obedience. It didn't matter that the darkly intoxicating subject matter of this troublesome children's book didn't suit the jolly adventure of Scrapes and Cliffhangers template that they wanted. So Chris Weitz was dragged back and convinced to take the reins again. Watch him in all the behind-the-scenes material if you have the disc. I see a man uncomfortable, uncertain, being muscled into this. He's timid and pleasant and calming to be around, but not inspiring. There's no marsh fire or witch oil in this landloper. He did a serviceable job on a bland, adapted screenplay that he had written, and this film is the result and it disappointed everyone. Audiences for not being brilliant or really about anything much. The studio, who wanted a domestic gross of around uh, $700 million for their investment, they got like 341 But a domestic gross. That's the thing. It had to do well in America. The fans for being such a light and flimsy version of their beloved book. The church for luring children to dangerous books and poor Dakota Blue Richards, who clearly yearned to return to her role as Lyra Balacqua, and now never can. But let's journey back into the world of demons now, and into the retiring room where this story begins, as I ask the question, who, at this point in time, is Lyra Balacqua? Early Lyra is just such an average little girl. Oh, you can't say average little girl. Yeah, I'm average. Well, I don't mean it in that, like, she is a normal child who has experienced none of the... Hardships? Hardships, and the... She's she's still innocent. She's still... She's a child? She's a child. She's mm. still a child. But she's rude and savage and practically feral, actually, I think he paints her as. She's very well realised, though. She um, she doesn't... It, it, it's quite typical for young children in movies, except for... Well, even the, the early Harry Potters, hmm. to be a bit squeaky and hmm. a bit too... But I can't be a... Wh- wh- wizard. Wizard. Um, and, my God, they worked hard to get the right person. Yeah, no, they they, uh, they interviewed um, thousands of girls uh, in Oxford alone. Uh, they, they were supposed to, be, you know, be going up and down the country and interviewing more and more each time, but they narrowed it down to two, and that Pullman was like, "Yep, it's one of those two. One of those was Dakota Blue Richards. The other one was a girl who never got to be Lyra." But I, I do wonder what her performance would have been like. Mm. But Pullman's creation of her as well, she is very much in that tradition. Yeah, incorporate of... book as well as film here. She's she's very much in that tradition of literary heroines that I have always adored, and that's Katie Carr, Joe Marsh, Kathy Linton. No, Kathy Earnshaw. She was at that point, <laughs> and uh, Hermione Granger, and you know all of those girls who would be generally considered to be a bit out of control and 
not quite fitting in with their surrounding environment, but not really caring that much and being very determined to do their own thing and not be trammeled. And George from The Famous Five as well fits into that mould quite well. One thing about her, at least very evident, and it kind of evolves as going on, it shows how adaptable she is. Mm. From Because you have this, this girl who's grown up with, you know, really one of the few girls in Oxford at that point, because most of the people she seems to play with are little boys. So she's mm. adopted this tomboy persona. Then as she evolves, we get a little bit more of the Egyptian and then a little bit more of, you know, her of Mrs. Coulter and so she kind of adapts based off what that where she is and who she's with and that, that becomes kind of a key for her character over the years is adapting to whatever situation yeah. that she's thrown into and I think there's everything that's going on there and showing her natural natural leadership qualities with the way she's able to band people together like it, it establishes her very quickly in the book as like you know, she's she's very good at mani- manipulation. Is that really the right word? It's, Command. It's close. <sighs> she's yeah. very used to when she she uh, asks for something to get it. Mm. I think as well the the remark about her being a good liar because she doesn't have much imagination. Hmm. Um, it's not quite accurate, but her her version of lying is not really lying. It's mimicking. It's imitating the environment that she's in. It's camouflage. It's adapting elements that she's picked up along the way and weaving them into a tapestry which sits at home with everything that's around her. Absolutely. She's chameleonic, and so the people Mm. that she encounters feel very comfortable with her very quickly because she stops being an outsider remarkably fast. Mm. What struck me uh, when I I read it the first time is... um it was hard actually we were just off the um, uh, Lord of the Rings and just sort of getting into Harry Potter and Harry Potter is very very easy to get into it is just like uh, you can just gobble up that first one and uh, I think we may even have like we got to the end of the fourth book and we were like need more Potter and Phoenix was several uh, years off being released and so uh, you got hold of uh, Northern Lights and we were like what 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 is going on what's it and I think I remember being annoyed that the book doesn't tell you straight away what the hell, you know, give you the uh, the context. Because I'm an idiot at that point. Well, that, that's a very different approach. Because, I mean, it, it, this is billed as a young adult slash adult novel. Yeah. When you compare that to Harry Potter, where everything is kind of spoon-fed to you very early, you know, very quickly as to how the world yeah, works. Certainly sources. Versus, versus this, where it's... I mean, I remember... I had finished, much like you, I'd finished, Lord, you know, Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter were going on, and we picked it up out of recommendation, and I we bought it where we were traveling, and I started reading it in an airplane, I'm like, okay, this is, it's intriguing, I'm not really sure what's going on, and it took me a while to get through the book the first time. Mm-hmm. I'm going to play you a section from the audiobook, uh, read by Philip Pullman himself, with a full cast playing each character. This was instrumental to me uh, to help me visualise how New Century could be. And I've added a score to this audiobook, dotted around, to create an ultimate edition. And I'll talk about which score it is later, you might recognise it. But it's not from the Golden Compass.
Lyra and her demon moved through the darkening hall, taking care to keep to one side, out of sight of the kitchen. The three great tables that ran the length of the hall were laid already, the silver and the glass catching what little light there was, and the long benches were pulled out ready for the guests. Portraits of former masters hung high up in the gloom along the walls. Lyra reached the dais and looked back at the open kitchen door and, seeing no one, stepped up beside the high table. The places here were laid with gold, not silver, and the fourteen seats were not oak benches but mahogany chairs with velvet cushions. Lyra stopped beside the master's chair and flicked the biggest glass gently with a fingernail. The sound rang clearly through the hall. You're not taking this seriously, whispered her demon. Behave yourself. Her demon's name was Pantalaimon, and he was currently in the form of a moth, a dark brown one so as not to show up in the darkness of the hall. They're making too much noise to hear from the kitchen, Lyra whispered back. And the steward doesn't come in till the first bell. Stop fussing. But she put her palm over the ringing crystal anyway, and Pantalaimon fluttered ahead and through the slightly open door of the retiring room at the other end of the dais. After a moment, he appeared again. There's no one there. I'm, I'm trying to remember the first time I read it because it was probably seventh grade. It was the, was the very first time I read it. Everyone in my class was reading it. And me being very contrary was like, well, I don't want to read it if everyone else is reading it. Brilliant. But by, by, <laughs> that's, yes. that's what I did with Harry Potter. <laughs> well, by the summer, I eventually conceded and read it when no one else was watching. And... It was brilliant. It was such a, a beautifully written book and and really a very good follow-up to, I think at that point, only the first two or three Harry Potter books had come out and I had finished had finished those. This was just such a great a great follow-up piece. And I've I've kind of noted as as time has gone on, I've mentioned this to Ian in my past couple rereads, that this book is it takes such an emotional toll on me more as an adult than it did when I was a child. I'm just more aware of some of the themes because as a, as a young reader, what I noted most was the, the adventure of it. Mm-hmm. And, and I wanted my own demon and, and how, how absolutely wonderful that would be. Mm-hmm. And I think what stood out for me most in this first chapter and getting to know Lyra was that contradiction between her and Pan, because mm. Pan is this just cowardly, coward. isn't fair, he's, but he's, he's a realist. What's, what's he's, the word? Pragmatist. That's probably more fair than, than coward. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's definitely not a coward. He's aware of genuine dangers and factors them into his equations. Yes, whereas, whereas Lyra goes, I don't care. He's exactly what he's he's exactly what he's supposed to be. He's Lyra's conscience. Mm. She just doesn't listen to him ninety yeah. percent of the time. He doesn't. Well, she does. Wrong. She does later, a little bit later. But in this yeah. very first scene in the retiring room, she's uh, very much disregards what he has to. I've just realized this. Um, okay, so Lyra's uh, Lyra's the ego, and, and she's allowing her id to basically rule her actions, and Pan is the superego, just trying to hold her back. Mm. Whereas Mrs. Coulter, manipulating everyone, controlling everyone, and pushing the world into her twisted version of what's right. Super ego personified as, you know, the parent, who's also very 
um, glamorous with it and, and uh, you know, keeps talking about being able to do what she wants as the ego. But the real ego is Ozymandias, who's just desperate to act out her chaotic, destructive needs. And she's got him held in check. Mm. I was going to mm-hmm. literally just thinking about that, the idea that I, I was trying to puzzle out what are these demons? Are they the it? You know, are they the uh, the the child part of you that that drives you and has these natural impulses and actions that, as you grow up, you have to learn to curb? Or are they the superego, an externalization of that parent part of you that keeps you under control? And I, I think, think they're probably, a blend. Yeah, it jumps back and forth between them as a child and then as an adult when they settle. You're both pretty much of one mind. Mm. Yeah. Huh. Well, that's the balance. Is the the ego is the balance between uh, super mm. ego and um, id. You basically never see mm-hmm. a stable adult in any of these books arguing with their demon. Mm. Sorry, something that just threw. You mentioned Mrs. Coulter's demon being named Ozymandias, and I'd never heard that before. Oh no, yeah. That's not in any of the books. It's not in the books. So we were totally thrown. Apparently, it was just in the BBC radio yeah. adaptation. adaptation. Okay, and I've actually I don't think I've ever heard that one because the audiobook is so good. We can continue calling him the Golden Monkey. Which is no, Ozymandias awesome. is fine. Well, it's it's actually something it's, I noticed in the movie. The Golden Monkey or Ozymandias never speaks mm-hmm. or anything compared to a lot of the other demons. Yeah, he's very just driven. He doesn't. He doesn't need to voice anything, kind of which is very opposite of Miss Coulter. Very id. I, I actually think that him not having a name fits with that. He doesn't have a name. Mm. He doesn't have a voice. He is very much under her control, mm. mm-hmm. and she uses him to do things that she, as this glamorous um, projection, can't do. He's her hands, her spy, on more than one occasion. Mm. But uh, when we named Lyra, I just I had this hope that uh, she would grow up to be as fierce and fiery as Lyra, but just a bit less rude, and hopefully just a <laughs> rubbish liar by comparison, but maybe a bit more compassionate than Lyra Balacqua uh, until later when Lyra becomes more passionate and compassionate in the uh, later books. Um, and Which so far she yeah, is she's, pretty much. She's pretty close. <laughs> well, and it's and in even in this first book. She does show wonderful moments of compassion mm, mm. in the situations that she's put in. Lyra Shaw is more of a scaredy cat. Uh, she's got pantalime and blended in there, uh, good and proper. So uh, <laughs> if she can overcome that fear and actually be uh, braver and, and more like Lyra Balacqua. She's more socialised. Yeah. Bear in yeah. mind, mm-hmm. Lyra does not have, as in Lyra Balacqua, <laughs> does not have um, a classroom full of peers every day telling her, don't do this, do yeah. that. But also there's the, the fact that uh, there's a lot of, in Balakwa, there's a lot of Lord Asriel, that part, part of the, there's a blend, a genetic and, and possibly biosimosis um, sense of, of, of heritage in, uh, uh, from both Coulter and Lord Asriel. In both cases, they're uh, adults who are very used to having their own way. And they've got such a commanding air about them so that when Lyra starts barking orders at Egyptians or... Um, uh, children, the way that Azriel treats people, no one would ever say no to him uh, unless they were going to directly challenge him. Lord Azriel was a tall man with powerful shoulders, a fierce dark face, and eyes that seemed to flash and glitter with savage laughter. It was a face to be dominated by or to fight, never a face to patronize or pity. All his movements were large and perfectly balanced, 
like those of a wild animal, and when he appeared in a room like this, he seemed a wild animal held in a cage too small for it. We have the, the nature part of that, and then the nurture growing up is the really the only child in Jordan College that is not a, a servant. Mm. She's not, uh, she's above that, and she knows it. Mm. She and, has a sense of her own, or her perceived superiority. Yeah, well, and, you know, it's not really explored, but, you know, we know that she was favored by a lot of the scholars, so how much of them kind of bowed down to some of her wishes just to keep her quiet or whatever, so she may have just got used to that entitlement of, oh, well, if I say this, the scholars will do it just because they don't want to put up with me, whether it's they don't want to put up with my crap or whatever. Also, if they wanted to gain Asriel's favor, then, um, you know... Being in favour with Lyra probably wouldn't have mm. hurt them. Definitely. The retiring room section and Lyra's Jordan afterwards is a challenging beginning to a book. It's dry. It is a small child um, who has snuck into a stuffy meeting full of adults that we're being told is learning all sorts of fascinating things. Uh, but from you know her spying, and then there's there's some great uh, tension. Um, but especially if you've already read it and you know what's going to happen and what's not going to happen, rereading this and going back through this is quite a slog because there's a lot of sort of, oh, you know, we must observe these particular things. And But it, you have the language to carry you through it. Mm. But there's, um, you know, for, for little children, I can see why this would be really quite intimidating in that they're like, dust, north, why care should but this is effectively where you get so much of your explanation of the world through observation yeah you get things like um you know lyra knocks herself and pan says ow you know that that kind of not exactly but that kind of thing is happening throughout this whole scene to make it Mm. clear that these animals and, and people belong together, that they are bonded in some way. I mean, one of the, one of the things that I found um, about the, the movie translation it is basically they start the, the messing up pretty early. Almost immediately. Absolutely. I mean, you get mm-hmm. this, this whole segment where Serafina Peckler is basically laying everything out Being Galadriel. And, but it's not. It doesn't feel like a prelude. It feels like previously on his dark materials. <laughs> it's, a, it, it's a recap. Because this is this, and that is that. Yeah, but it's stated in a way that kind of suggests, you know, you know all this. We're, we're just reminding you. Well, if we know all this, why do you need to tell us mm. at all? It it just it steps on its own point. And then the fact that when you get into the the scene with the Tukay. Um, that it is uh, Fra Pavel that poisons it yeah. instead of the You master. were like, hang on, am I, I crazy? I'm or was am it... I remembering this wrong? Is no. that... But no. Mm-hmm. The master of Jordan is uh, what someone that Lyra Balakwa knows to be a good man, and he is doing something which we interpret as a bad thing, which presents the children with a complex mystery that can be explored and is never really absolutely fully laid bare as the the master straight up saying this is why I did this because he never gets questioned on it. Mm. In the film they're like right let's do a shorthand of that we'll have a clearly bad man doing a clearly bad thing and then Lyra prevents it happening completely missing the point Mm. of like 
ultimately, this is a world where people might be good or bad, and, and you know, ultimately might be trying to do bad things for good reasons, and and mm. it dispenses with it in favour of dun 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 dun. Chris White said two of his major influences on this were Barry Lyndon, the Kubrick film. For, possibly just for the, the beautiful lighting and the cinematography and the costumes and everything and Star Wars. Well, you're oh. fucked up there straight away. It yeah. just it that, oh, no. that single change for me just nailed their colours to the mast about doing away with the complexity of the book mm. and making everything nice and simple. Even the fact that this guy's evil, he's a living creep. There, there's obviously not much that they can do with the fact that Mrs. Coulter is a Shades of Grey character. Mm-hmm. However, they do their best to make it very, very clear that she is questionable from the outset. And plus the fact they laid it all out in the trailer anyway. Okay, that frustrated the hell out of me. In the, uh, this is actually jumping forwards a bit. I'm going to come back to the retiring room. The scene with Tony Makarios, where he's snatched up in the uh, in the book, um, Billy Costa and Roger get snatched in the alley. We've just met Mrs. Coulter and seen the Golden Monkey, and then they're just sort of mooching around in an alley, and then the Golden Monkey grabs Ratter, and Billy's going Ugh! because obviously Ratter's being grabbed, and then uh, Roger turns to see a scary shadow. Well, for a start, where's the mystery in that? We know who has that golden monkey. Secondly, we already know this is a villain, as has been shown in all the trailers. So why preserve that mystery? In the book, Tony Costa is a character that they conflated with... Uh, sorry, Tony Marcaris. There is also a Tony Costa who is the brother of Billy Costa. Just, just to make things... Because we need multiple characters with the same name. Too many Tonys. There's way too many Tonys. They conflated <laughs> two characters to make it easier. There is a whole seduction scene where he meets a beautiful, dark-haired woman. By the way, Philip Pullman was later on said, why the hell didn't I make her golden-haired? Obviously she's golden-haired. And it would make much more sense if you were rereading the book just to cross out the word dark-haired with a biro and just write golden, but carry on. Um, mm-hmm. she, he meets a beautiful, golden-haired woman after he's stolen a hot pie. And he's this you know, horrible, savage little child, you know, living rough on the street. And there's these sort of really awful kind of like throwaway comments about her poor, his poor drunken mother, the silly, you know, working-class thing. He follows the beautiful young lady and the golden monkey down Denmark Street and along to Hangman's Wharf and down King George's steps to a little green door in the side of a tall warehouse. She knocks, the door is opened, they go in, the door is closed. Tony will never come out, at least by that entrance, and he'll never see his mother again. She, poor drunken thing, will think he's run away, and when she remembers him, she'll think it was her fault, and sob her sorry heart out. It's it's a sudden tone change because it shifts to the present tense as opposed to the past tense of you know describing what has happened. It's suddenly what is happening. And um, he meets this beautiful woman who says, I've got too much chocolate, I'll talk to come with me. And then it explains how, you know, he gets... Uh, re- Does she give him any Turkish delight as well? Pretty much. That's and- all that I was about to say. This reminded me so much of yeah. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. She herds him into a, a, a place with... Um, with a lot of other little uh, children who are all drinking chocolate and going, what are you going to do with us? And then they're supposed to write home letters to their parents and you know, some of them are too stupid and ignorant to be able to write and they just sign their name or put an X. And then they all touch the fox fur for, for luck. And then just as the children leave the, uh, you know, and are loaded onto a boat, the beautiful lady walks past a burning brazier and then just casually tosses the letters in. And it's such an intoxicating, oh my God, scenario. <laughs> 
it's so beautifully and written with such a sort of sinister, beautiful undertones. And in the movie, it's just... It just in, in favor of what? Not showing that Mrs. Coulter is a bad egg. Just show it, guys. <laughs> Yeah. I felt I felt really bad about laughing at that kid choking. It was just oh, I will say so every awful. single child in this, apart from Dakota Blue Richards, is rubbish. Oh Some God. of the Egyptian kids so don't really. I was like, what are they? Kids of the crew or something? This is pathetic child acting. It wasn't that kind of like what was it? Was it Roger who he very very slow speaking? Like just like, I will say something here and near the end of the movie i was just like okay this is this is getting ridiculous like make this kid just, just, just speed just him up stop. a little bit mm. please it, it doesn't help that the script is ridiculously wooden oh my. Um, it's, it's, it's awful it's just chunks of exposition people say things that they pointless lines people say things that they just would not say in real life of careful lyra you know that if you get hurt, I hurt too. Mm. That's pretty much like saying, careful, Lara, if you spill Wibina on the carpet, it'll stain. Like, it's, it's so obvious. But, like, but specifically said. saying, like, rather than just don't, sp- don't spill, or just, like, careful with that Wibina, or something like that. But that's what a normal person would say to a child. But you don't say, it will stain. It will stain right into the carpet, and the carpet is white. Like, no one would say that. No, and that's, there's, very specifically, there's, there's words that the children are given to use, and they don't make sense coming out of the mouths of children. There's one point where, I think it's Roger, says adults instead of grown-ups. A yeah. kid would say grown-ups, mm. not adults. And Lyra says combined instead of put together. Yeah. And this is a girl who says "ent" rather than "am not" the whole way through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lord Asriel, like Daniel Craig's got the best delivery in the whole film. He perfectly embodies his character, but even he has to deal with clunkers like "your demon." I see it still hasn't settled yet, as is tradition when you reach a certain age. Pretty much, it's, it's just it's it's so full of just so you know this, folks. <laughs> they they definitely went to the school of uh, you know tell don't show. Yeah. I've always said that the perfect way of showing that uh, the the link between demon and, and uh, uh, child is to have Lyra just in the when she's sneaking around the retiring room at the beginning, looking at all of the uh, the setup, like just reaching out to touch one of the uh, lamps, burning her finger and going ow, and then having pantomime and go ow and, and mirror her in exactly the same way on the same screen. Every child will know immediately, straight away, right there. You don't have to say it ever because it is immediately apparent. One thing hurts both. And that's all they needed to do, and they could have stopped right at that hmm. point. But no, they had to continue that sentence. Because re-watching, <laughs> rewatching wonderfully elegant visual storytelling like that, time and again, is always rewarding. Rehearing clunky exposition time and again is always excruciating. This is script writing 101. It's it's painful. You know, the first time I saw it, because the first time I saw it, I did I did see it in theaters, and I was okay with it. I didn't despise it. I didn't think it was good. Mm. Oh, but... I didn't walk out going, ah! I was walking out going, I hope it does well so that we can get a better film for the sequel. Basically, uh, when I came out of Warcraft. Mm. Yeah. I, was, I, was like, I didn't want it to fail. I was just like, that could have been so much better. That's about how I walked out of it the first time, but re-watching it with Ian this past week, I went... I was okay with this, but this is horrendous. <laughs> what? What? How was I ever okay with this film? <laughs> I'm glad I only spent $3 miserable. on the DVD. I know. <laughs> uh, 
Oh. It was it so, was so much worse the second time. I don't want to watch it again. That's the thing, like, making something like, one of the, I'm going to keep coming back to New Century, but one of the things I always pay close attention to is, is this going to be great a second time, a third time? Is this just going, like, who's going to want to read this particular bit again? You can't afford to make something that's supposed to be special disposable. Exactly. Yep. It's not a a party camera. It's, uh, It's something for the ages. You're etching it in stone. Okay, so the retiring room, like I said... Oh, yeah, yeah, go, go. Oh, I was actually going to move into the retiring room was the other thing that the movie did that absolutely enraged me was the... There are a lot of things in the retiring room that enraged me, but the one thing is their their Harry Potter type photogram <laughs> of the moving dust. And I was like, "This is supposed to be a picture. This isn't freaking Harry Potter. Why is this moving?" And the whole technology of that the movie portrayed oh, oh my gosh. like still throws me off. It's like, what the I, hell I, I get... were these glowing blue orbs everywhere? <laughs> Everything. Oh my gosh. Like, I get, I get the idea, like, based off, like, all right, you know, Zeppelins are in use and whatever, that we, we would get a little bit more of a steampunk aesthetic, because that that seems fairly common with Zeppelins. But why do we have magic glowing orbs that power, like, carriages in London? That was um, their attempt to uh, bring to life something called Ambaric Power, which is mentioned repeatedly in the book. And I'm amazed that there was no bit where someone pointed to the Ambaric Power and said, watch out for that Ambaric Fire, Lyra. It'll burn you if you put your hand in it. (laughs) Sharon's face palming. Uh, But yeah, it's supposed to be electricity, but more organic. So it's kind of like uh, Sharon described it as caged static, which yeah, I like. That, well, that's that was the only thing I could think of. I mean, ultimately, Pullman doesn't really give you an explanation in the book of what it is because the world just is. It mm. doesn't, you know, mm. nobody has to sort of sit and have a lesson about how Ambaric power works. But one of the things that that I that kind of clicked with me is the the fact that the power is called Ambaric power, and or their version of electricity is called ambaric power, and their version of amber is called electrum. So it just seemed to me that they're just switched, so ambaric power isn't really going to be all that different from our electricity, Mm. except that, as you say, it's a more organic form, there's something a little bit more magical about it. Mm. Our electricity, this this is the thing, Electricity as we have it in this world. If you showed that to somebody who had never experienced anything like that in their lives, that would look magical. Mm -hmm. It's not magical to us because we know how it works. We know where it comes from. We know the effort and the fuel and the infrastructure that has to go into getting it from A to B. Some of us don't. All right, okay, we might not know the exact yes, details. Yes, it's fucking political. Everything's know. political. But we know that that infrastructure and that effort exists. We know that somewhere there are people digging coal out of mines so that we can switch a light on. Um, so we, we have that connection. And the the lack of explanation, to me, was part of what made the Ambaric Power seem magical. Mm. But, yeah, it, it, there was a there's a, a weird disconcerting um, lack of consistency about what the ambaric power looks like and can do well, not, not 
not even just that, but between that and between the um, the, the style of the the vehicles and the, the fact that there is clearly supposed to be kind of a, a hint. It's not exactly steampunk aesthetic, but there's kind of a clockworky. Yeah, there's a thing called clock it. punk, which uh, is sort of more Da Vinci-esque, if right. that makes sense. Okay, well, mm. that, that fits for this world to me. And mm. I, I think that was kind of what they were getting at. But then if you stick these great big glowing balls in the middle of everything. And, okay, I'm going to ask this now. Is this stated in the book, all the fire is green? green. No, I like that. Mm. It just, oh, it just no. ever so slightly offsets the world. They do actually mention that it is... I want to say they said it was actually more... Blue or red than green, but no, we um, can't go it, with guesswork on this show. I know. I, I apologize. <laughs> verified facts. The 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 naphtha lamps and the actual uh, the light the natural like flame lighting uh, in the uh, especially in the Jordan College uh, areas of the film is absolutely beautiful. They've got this you know the the rays of sunlight coming through the windows. It's brilliantly shot, and so it would lull you into a sense that these people know what they're doing <laughs> and, and obviously some of them really do knew what they were doing yeah, the, 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 the designers D- and the prop teams knew yeah. exactly what they were the doing the dp is not at all mm-hmm. to blame for the final product no, you know indeed um but uh, no, oh, no. It's, it's it's really even hard to lay this at chris white's feet as well i i want to hate him for what he's done here but at the same time he just feels like such a fall guy like like the studio brought him in and then made him do this yeah i've got totally your kids chris i've got your kids <laughs> <laughs> Um, we can't have this one end up as an Alan Smithy, Chris. We just can't. Yeah. But I mean, we were discussing who would have been a wonderful director. There were two directors on the on the slate for this who weren't actually really didn't get that close. Okay, now this is. I'm going to give you two names, and it could have been so much better, but it could have been so much worse. Okay, good first. Sam Mendes. Okay. Dude's got class. And if he had uh, uh, Roger Deakins uh, as his uh, DP, would have been so superb to look at. <clears throat> On the other hand, Brett Ratner. Brett Ratner. The director of X-Men 3. Oh, no. No, no, no. He looks like fat Johnny Knoxville. Um, <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> uh, directed Red Dragon as well. Uh, basically, uh, his... His horrible work on X- X-Men, I will never forgive him for. Uh, he also... Do- I really like Rush Hour. <laughs> Known for The Revenant? Oh, he was producer. <laughs> what? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, he also directed R- Rush Hour 2, which is terrible. So, you know, as it was, Chris Weitz did a good enough job on this. You know, we're going to be directing all this. Oh, it's it's awful. But it really could have been worse. Like, the delivery on for some of the kids some of the adults is a bit wooden and the lines are just blah 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 but a lot of the performances are actually really good for yeah. what they have to work the with the casting they is superb I was going to say I love everyone they got for the main cast I was very happy with like in what they given what they had to work with mm, yeah yeah. I, I, I mean, literally wrote it down for three different people so and so was fantastic as this character but they really didn't have much to do and I wrote that down three times mm. wow yeah absolutely and that was the feeling that we got through pretty much every every character I was really impressed with Nicole Kidman 
I was really impressed with Daniel Craig. The the girl, Dakota. Dakota Blue Richards. Blue Richards. She was great. Roger was was well. Roger, he was kind of. Roger was rubbish. But he well, he wasn't meant to be a very big character anyway. Considering with with, with the book in consideration, he wasn't meant to be in it all that much. Ian McKellen as oh, a we'll get, giant freaking bear. We'll get on to Ian McKellen in just a bit because I've got a thing to say about that. But uh, oh yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah, Eva Green as uh, Serafina mm, Peckler is Daniel fantastic. Craig, Nicole Kidman. Sam Nicole Elliott. Kidman was my choice uh, years beforehand when I first read uh, uh, Northern Lights because we'd just seen the others, and I thought, you know, this is her character is so like Mrs. Coulter, mm. so I was overjoyed when that happened. Yeah, it had to be. See, this is there was a real difficulty with Mrs. Coulter because it had to be somebody who could play the malevolence. And yet you would still care what happened to her. Mm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that is such a difficult balance to strike. There's a handful of actors that can pull that off. The uh, casting uh, directors, Fiona Weir uh, has done most of the Harry Potter films from David Yates onwards. So she has done some splendid new casts for that. Mm. It kind of makes it easy for a casting agent if you've already got the cast already there. So it's like, oh, who are we going to have as, as Ron in this one? Uh, let's go with Rupert Grint. Mm. Let's go and have lunch. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting all kinds of things done today. Uh, Lucy Bevan, and the other uh, casting agent, uh, did uh, Cinderella, the recent live-action remake, Maleficent, An Education, Pirates of the Caribbean, Stranger Tides, uh, Jungle Book. Ah, not that Jungle Book, but... The other one? The other Jungle Book with Andy Serkis. Um, but uh, that's got a fantastic cast as well. Benedict Cumberbatch, Christian Bale, Kate Blanchett, Andy Serkis, Naomi Harris, Eddie Marson. That's That'll be interesting. Yeah, it will. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, Kathy Bates was Hester. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Well, we'd just <gasps> seen Misery the other day, so it was weird oh hearing her voice oh, coming oh. out of her hair. Oh. Nicely. She's so good in that film. That is... It's, oh, uh, that... That terrifies me, but it's so good. Get it, get out of the cockatoonie car! <laughs> Seriously, I mean, we've already said this on the episode uh, fan response, but if you want to see writ large internet fandom right now, just go back to this sublimely black comedy thriller from the 80s. Uh, Rob Reiner doing Stephen King at his best. Oh, it was so good. Okay, so the retiring room, you're absolutely right about the fact that they made uh, these wizard photographs rather than just photographs, because I think this was just one of those cases of let's just zhuzh it up a bit because we can't be trailing behind Potter. And also the whole showing the dust coming down, I suppose that moving element gives you more of a sense of like, you know, this is something amazing that's happening. But... I suppose they could have done it where it was like moving in incredibly slow motion. So rather than just him waving like a buffoon, like the whole image was just moving extremely slowly. So you could see the dust glittering and moving slightly to make it more like a hologram. Yeah, I would have had the dust moving, but not him. Yeah, well, you could also do that. It would yeah. look like it was added in after effect, though. So, or at least change it to if if they really wanted to have it mm. moving, add that like real projector kind of thing to yeah. make it very obvious that it's no, some it, kind of movie, I, not I, just a magic movie picture. I stuck a rock and a projector, and this happened. Well, <laughs> yeah. the, the image is wrong. The yeah, child the is, is missing from the image. Yeah, mm. that's the whole. The, the entire child. like central like driving force of this whole thing. 
There was a severed head in this scene, folks. They removed that. He basically, uh, Lord Asriel plonks a severed head down and everyone freaks out and he says, that is the head of Stanislas Grumman, uh, who turns out to be a character we meet later on and is rather important. And uh, yeah, Not in this movie. Upset people. <laughs> There's a lot of chatter as well, just like backwards and forwards. There's so much sort of gossip that Lyra overhears, some of it important, some of it not. In the movie, she only ever hears things that prime her for later. So mm-hmm. it's it's you know how in Harry Potter the Harry Potter books Joe kind of blended things that actually weren't of any major importance in with the sort of secret clues she had put in there and you know mm-hmm. it's it's quite laborious reading through all of the Harry Potter books as much as I love Joe's writing um, but the movies kind of somehow get that blend between fun stuff and important stuff with this it's just the important stuff and if you have fun good I suppose. <laughs> Just count that as a bonus. Yeah, it's there's there's a really great example of that that later outside of the retiring room with uh, Tony Costa mm. talking to Lyra, and I'll I'll save that. I'll... But even going back to the retiring room and like the the change to trying to who po- who tries to poison Lord Asriel, mm. the the ad the adding the magisterium this early. Mm. If I like, I, I've just finished re-listening to it again. Like, you really, you get a few drops of the magisterium through the book, like it's name dropped, mm. but it isn't until like the second to last chapter you find out what the magisterium is, mm. and it's just like, okay, I understand. Like, okay, they wanted to try and have some big bad, I guess, but at the same time, it's like in the early book you have Miss Coulter as the bad guy. And then right at and the, the end, gobblers. and the gobbler. So we we have driving bad guys there. And at the end, you have well, Lord Asriel, and that is, you know, the shift there. So it's like, why did we need to include nameless bad guys with mm. Christopher Lee and other people? Christopher Lee is like second guy, the Christopher There's- Lee. <laughs> The Magisterium wouldn't even really have played that big a role in the second movie if they were doing it, so why do all this setup and wasted time with this crap when you could have just actually focused on what actually happened? Again, and it was, every they time, had to... Oh, go ahead. And every time we cut back to them, it goes... Dun, 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 <laughs> and shows their big, tall towers and says, look, these guys are trying to oppress everybody. And it's, it's, I can tell you why. Uh, it's because... Whites went out of his way to go, right, uh, we can't call these guys the church. They are an evil empire. They are trying to take control and control everything, and that's bad. Am I right? See, that's what I was No one can say. argue with Throughout that. Throughout the book, you, yes, all right, you don't have them referred to as the magisterium all that much, but you do have mention of the church, the teachings of the church. This is what the church thinks, blah, blah, blah. They literally went through it with a black marker. I just used the word literally in the wrong context. Ah, uh, maybe they, they did. <laughs> it you know, seems they, they like well they literally went through it with a pen and crossed out any reference to. It would have been the a church. red sharpie, though. Yeah, good point. <laughs> or a gold sharpie for extra class. <laughs> but they, that's the, they, they added the magisterium, they, they changed to the magisterium for all this, but then missed out all the important stuff about the church that actually happened. Like, establish this for, for. Again, we've got to imagine that everyone listening doesn't know and has only seen the film so what don't they know about the magist- the, the actual church well okay so the book never uh, the movie never touches on the fact that there are, there are other instruments like the alethiometer that are controlled by the church mm-hmm. which I mean I suppose is not that big a deal the church is it's there but it's never really central to any of the characters except for Mrs. Coulter who is 
an agent an for agent, the yeah. agent of the church, but she did that to gain power. They're, I mean, they're very just for for the sake of anybody who hasn't read the books. The the church in these stories are very much the Catholic Church. Mm. Um, there's there's that sense of um, wealth. And a bunch of vampire political. priests standing around telling people that they're bad and they yeah. shouldn't do this and um, that they need to trust them as their uh, supreme authority and they have the ear of the Lord. Absolutely. Wealth and political power and having their fingers in basically every single pie mm. in, in terms of things like education. Let's they, not forget terrible things happening to children and going unpunished. Well, indeed. They don't directly govern... Uh, the, the colleges and the universities but they certainly have an awful lot of weight over what they're allowed to do and what they're allowed to study and what they're allowed to investigate um, and, and part of why Asriel is having to basically come cap in hand to the college for funding for his expeditions and has to be very careful about what he says is he knows the church won't want him to be funded to do this investigation because it, it will ultimately prove things that will be mm. Uh, disadvantageous to them. And they need to be able to say, well, we knew all about this all along and uh, you know, here is what we think of the situation. If ultimately no one's going to listen to them because of this new findings, they slip in power. What they wanted to do was have their cake and eat it, you know, to have this sort of obvious parallel with the Catholic Church, but not say it literally and then go, well, as long as we aren't straight up saying that it's the church, that's okay, right? But uh, since the real-life church came back with, well, you never actually straight up attacked the church, but we know how evil these books are, so our point still stands. They achieved nothing. They simply pulled all the teeth out of the book with pliers. Also, entirely to appeal to an American audience where the predominant, dare I say it, complaining religious component is not the Catholic Church anyway, although, mind you, I suppose they do hold a similar level of political power in America. Well, basically, just Christians would have a, uh, you know, super devout Christians would have a problem with what is written in this book, simply because of how it deals with Genesis, how it deals with original sin, how it deals with cutting, and just the church exploiting and controlling. It doesn't paint them in a good light. It's, 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 it makes them look pretty evil, beyond yeah. evil, just terrible you can understand why they would consider it to be we must silence this book we must burn this book but I mean they, they got up in arms and filled with wrath and brimstone and hate over Harry Potter which does nothing but friendship and self-sacrifice and love and everything that if you were going to particularly follow the, the, the more positive teachings of Jesus you'd go yeah actually that's pretty much straight on as opposed to warlocks are enemies of God and I don't care what kind of hero they are. They're an enemy of God. And had it been in the Old Testament, Harry Potter would have been put to death. And uh, burning those books over and over again, it, it comes down to the children are into this and not what you're selling. When this, when this film came out, I was actually working in a, in a daycare. And there were a few, a, a, a church daycare. I was working for a daycare in the Methodist church. And I had to shut a few kids down on on hating this film and one one kid in particular like I can't believe all these stupid atheists want to see this movie and I was like oh oh no 
So See, we had you, to. When you say I had to shut them down, I'm thinking like a Bourne style takedown on them. <laughs> Just, I, and they're I, on the that, floor wondering what happened. That would have been much more satisfying, personally. <laughs> but instead, we had to have a conversation of, well, we are, we're not going to call other people stupid for thinking differently because doesn't Jesus tell you to love everyone? Okay, let's start there. And we had to kind of work through not hating atheists. What, and what? I don't know if it, it went anywhere with him. After that, but uh, I, I hope it did. I hope that made at least some small difference sure. in his his life. I do love it when it is entirely possible to use fervently religious people's own teachings against them. That I, I was, was very that's a good idea. Tie them up with a logic conundrum. They love that. <laughs> I, was, I was literally about to say. So you had to use his own logic against him. Basically, I'd be like, well, let's let's not. Let's not hate all the atheists because they want to see this film just because they think differently than you. Because if you hate and kill all the atheists, how are you going to convert them to Christianity? <sighs> it was it was both a really like demoralizing conversation for me and and hopefully a conversation worth remembering for for him. But I I really did want to hit that kid so bad. So after the retiring room, we get a big long uh, section on Lyra's Jordan where uh, um, Pullman goes into what has been going on in Lyra's life up to this stage and, and painting a very vivid picture of the city she lives in. And, and you know, he's very uh, evocative in sort of, you know, how he talks about these sprawling... East along the great highway of the River Isis, thronged with slow-moving brick barges and asphalt boats and corn tankers, Way down past Henley and Maidenhead to Teddington, where the tide from the German Ocean reaches, and further down still, to Mortlake, past the house of the great magician Dr. D, past Folksall, where the pleasure gardens spread out bright with fountains and banners by day, with tree lamps and fireworks by night, past Whitehall Palace, where the king holds his weekly council of state, past the Shot Tower, dropping its endless drizzle of molten lead into vats of murky water, further down still to where the river, wide and filthy now, swings in a great curve to the south. This is Limehouse, and here is the child who is going to disappear. It's got kind of this Victorian, maybe 1920s at latest, feel to it. Mm -hmm. And uh, just the way that the world is set up, it feels like it's considerably behind in our time. And actually, if you remember the uh, the bit in The Subtle Knife with the Samoyed sled, it does suggest that certain things that happened in this time period could have happened uh, at, at some place in, in other worlds. Mm. I, mm-hmm. I suspect something went very uh, differently with the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, but, mm-hmm. principally because of the difference of... They, they discovered ambaric power before we had really harnessed electricity. Mm. But this is all stuff you have to infer, which, again, it's kind of like a slowly unfolding puzzle. And you're sort of like, you know... Taking notes again. This is something which I've I've done with New Century. I've been like rather than just stating outright what differences are, especially with uh, Rama and um, uh, Centrum. Although actually, with with uh, Princess Thieves, I've I've kind of turned that on its head and started um, like straight up out loud saying when things are important and when things are not important. Um, but uh, with Tiger's Eye, it was very much a kind of well, you can sort of like piece together this world as you're going along, rather than me straight up like I, I was thinking should this have an introduction or should I just go straight into Corral's point of view and you can piece this together on your own and I went with the latter and I thought that that made it a much more challenging book because it 
the Northern Lights certainly challenged the hell out of me. <laughs> but um, it, it's also rewarding to be presented with a mystery that you have to unpick as well. I mean, not everyone loves that, but those who do, it feels like you're unpuzzling something and, and, and getting it all straight. I suppose it, it's kind of like archaeology, where you start in this great mm-hmm. big blank area and you chip away and there's a little something you find just a thing and you're like uh-oh okay so if i start chipping away just carefully around here because you can't just go hacking in there with a spade you'll start smashing things up so so that will be the equivalent of just barging through reading through without really paying close attention so it's like you've got to go in there with your brush and your you know your little trowel and you slowly uncover it and at the end you can look at what this excavation you uncovered and actually get an appreciation for another world well, and then the, it's also good for the reader because you can then imagine the world however you see it. And we all probably have our own variations on what we think Lyra's world looks like mm-hmm. because simply because of the lack of detail. It does have the, detail, but it's, 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 he's not, someone said that uh, he doesn't ever describe exactly what someone's wearing. I, I think he doesn't describe the cut of it, but he does describe the materials. That's a good way of describe of, of how he handles the rest of the worlds as well. Right. And I think what what is really great about this this whole chapter of the book is it really if we're if we think about it in terms of like the hero's journey, this is really showing her mastery yeah. of her current world. She's she knows how to manipulate all the other not manipulate but work with all the other kids and who's at war with who and how to get on the rooftops and exploring the underground and really being a a master of her environment and of her world she's the queen of oxford yeah she's Hmm. she is the queen of of oxford and of the children and and she knows just what to say to dare them into doing something or or backing off or it's actually very pertinent that she starts in the retiring room spying on a bunch of Mm -hmm. grown-ups talking about impenetrable things and and boring but uh, Mm -hmm. boring things that mask much more interesting things uh, because Mm -hmm. effectively what she then when she treads out into the world she's flung into an adult uh, situation and it's just from one terrifying scenario to the next where children should not be the only time she's ever with other children is a place where children really should not be which is the experimental station and uh she's you know she's effectively trying to remove this um and, and return this uh slice of innocence back to the world it came from well and i think that's also that was you know with that in mind the change to the opening of golden compass versus the Northern Lights. So the movie opens differently. Yeah. With da, 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 da. Oh, it's a many war. Yeah, and well, and I think uh, part of that too is you know, with Lyra getting, as you said, the mastery of her domain and getting to know all this, we get to know characters or at least the groups that will be coming into play later. There's you know like her <laughs> in the movie. The Egyptians are so underdeveloped compared to the book. Mm. Like, oh, suddenly there are people with boats, and Lyra has met them in the movie, versus... I was going to say something, but you pretty much summed it up in one sentence. <laughs> a fragment, consider a vision. So, and it, it's that change, like, not, you know, but like we were saying there with the, you know, starting with the adult ideas and then shifting into her 
life versus starting with her life and shifting into the adult ideas for the difference in the two movies is kind of representative of the whole damn movie. But what I love about about the book that that doesn't touch very much in the movie is that she takes those adult ideas and she converts them into something that she can use to lord over the other children or tell them stories Mm -hmm. or like oh well my uncle Asriel went to the north and he had a you know he decapitated somebody or she doesn't say it quite like that but that she she uses those adult things to tell the other kids kind of fantastical stories Hmm. he just looked at a man and he fell down dead of fright yeah that was uh, when she found out about Azriel. Um, oh, actually, I can't remember if that is that afterwards when she's with the Egyptians. Because who the hell would she boast to about that? Uh, no, because the Egyptian story is about the poison and the. Oh yeah, the poison in the ring, and and That's he it, yeah. uh, they passed yeah. the wine so fast that nobody noticed he poured the poison in. <laughs> but but then he said, because we're such good friends, we should all drink each other's wine, and he he sat there and died. Took him three days. Yeah, so it was it was really great that she takes these kind of adult things that she's hearing and kind of integrates them into into these really wild stories that kind of elevates her status among the other children because she's such a great storyteller. This is why I, I always take issue with the when Pullman defines that as having no imagination whatsoever. She's got imagination, but she. Can only, she she basically requires input for the building blocks, but that's mm-hmm. really what having a good imagination is. You don't just uh, go, oh, a purple chair and a big cloud. That becomes abstraction. It's not the imagination can simply be combining so many elements that you've been given mm-hmm. into something that feels really real, See, which is way, how she lies. The way I always interpreted that was that um, it, it, she can't. She doesn't believe that she's lying. She, if she is going to tell these convincing stories, mm, that becomes basically, the reality. It's the, the reality for yeah. her. So she's not really imagining this mm. stuff. She's remembering it. Yeah, yeah. So she's reconvening the world and then simply giving people account for that. Exactly. Yeah. She is. She's re, as you say. She remolds that world in mm. the way she wants it to be, and then puts it back out there. It, mm-hmm. which, it was very familiar i used to do that a lot when i was little (laughs) you know what i'm saying about how i used to be before i was like eight or nine years old Mm -hmm. pretty much lyra is how i was before i was eight or nine years old and that's what my my parents constantly accuse me of that because they're i i will tell them something of how i remember it when i was a kid and they'll go no no that absolutely did not happen like that i don't know where you were but that is not how how your life was at all Mm. Like I have a, my, my dad claims this never happened and so does my mother, (laughs) but I vividly remember him telling me, my dad telling me while we were in a mall that mannequins come to life and eat children that do not, (laughs) (laughs) that wander away from their parents. And then he left me sitting next to some mannequins while he went to the bathroom and I was absolutely convinced I was going to die. And and all of them, com- like my entire family, completely denies that my dad would ever tell me a story like that, and that was just something that I made up. I I, I believe my wife over her dad. <laughs> I, I, I that's the kind of thing I think he would say, having met him multiple times. It does sound like a really effective modern urban myth to tell your children. Yeah. These are the <laughs> to stop them wandering of the off in a mall. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, 
back on Lyra and her lack of imagination slash lying, it's also, I think, probably a product of her environment. She's grown up with these scholars trying to teach her all these things that they've learned and, like, learned from each other. So she just had this product of... She just gets secondhand knowledge her entire life. So she's got used to filling in the gaps. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and she even... in In the book, they go into it a little bit that that on occasion a scholar will kind of capture her for a little bit and maybe a week and then she'll just stop showing up and they're both completely happy with that arrangement and she'll learn just a little bit about math or science or whatever it happens to be that that scholar is studying because they don't really want to teach her She's anything else. She's assembled her life from scraps and bits. She's gotten some from the Egyptians, some from the scholars, some from Asriel... Uh, mm-hmm. Some from the the cooking staff, some from Mrs. Lonsdale, just from everyone who can provide her with something, she'll take something. Uh, not in a, a way of stealing, but just this, this this precipitates her being able to blend in and absorb these cultures as she moves forwards mm-hmm. and become one with them. She's uh, her, her capacity for adaptation is uh, is what keeps her alive time and again. Um, so yeah, after the retiring room and Lyra's Jordan, which by the way, I love the way it describes the underground caverns as being like um, this, uh, you know, parts of a giant fungus that uh, you know extend <laughs> deep under there, and that no one even knows what's down there and doesn't want to know. I, I mean, just basically, just say to me subterranean tunnel network, and I'll go, ooh, okay. And I'm suddenly interested. <laughs> oh, ancient subterranean tunnel network? I'm just, That's even more interesting. And uh, ironically, I am like I hate being trapped and I hate uh, claustrophobia. I'm afraid of the dark, so I've, I'm curiously pulled in both directions. But uh, I love that. But yeah, <laughs> the children are being snatched left, right, and center by gobblers. The, uh, uh, the you know, As is described in the movie, the general oblation board, you find out later, uh, which, uh, to, to, to cut a long story short... Uh, the church is commissioning a series of experiments on children to see if cutting off their demons prior to them settling as adolescents might make them more pliable. That's what it is, right? Basically, I think that the the, uh, the justification is that it that. I don't know whether they use dust as their argument, like dust must be evil and this stops dust settling on them, so it must be a good thing to do. Well, dust is, I, is sin and we don't want sin yeah, settling. Even, even if they don't do it in this particular book, it is definitely heavily implied later that dust is the like essence of original sin settling on your person as you become an adult. That's the big conversation with Lord Asriel in the last chapter before it all goes down, as he flat out says that to Lyra. Yeah. That's right. That Rorschach... That is right. from the Bible. Um, their version of the Bible. What is the particle called? Roscoff particles. Yeah, was, you know, because it only affects adults. They, The church basically took the doctrine and this idea because they couldn't deny it, mm. because all scientific discoveries are released by the church, that the only logical explanation then was it was evidence of original sin because it only hit once they became adults and hit puberty. But this is after they performed an exorcism on the scientist to make sure mm. that there were no demons in his head. Not g- good <laughs> demons, bad demons. Mm. But I think in, in terms of the actual uh, practical mechanics of it, if you consider that people go through some of the biggest biological changes of their entire life... And emotional. Well, I meant biological in terms of um, their brain 
physically changes. The chemicals that are shooting around their body change. And emotion. Um, so emotional is, <laughs> yes, kind of a, a All an changes. Of that. Um, but if you... I, I presume that the, the point of the cutting away the demon and the, the separating is to prevent the, uh, the feedback of rapid change that goes on through that period of their life. So oh, basically, I... like, but shut them down, effectively. Stop them feeling anything through those through that period. Shorter version, get them while they're young, which is why we have, you know, congregations of choir boys and the idea of, you know, we'll get our claws into you here and the priest will hear your confession and you terrible, terrible child. And uh, it's, it's, it's why that kind of organised religion isn't like, no, 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 you, you're... Wait till you're 17, 18, and you're old enough to be able to make up your own mind before you start speaking to these priests. Mm. It's get them straight in there early. Yeah. And, and the First Communion being, you know, about, like, I am pledging myself mm. to this particular... And to a degree, it could be argued that that's been replaced with Ritalin prescriptions and the oh, like. Oh, God. Basically, they're behaving like kids. Oh, my God. Medicate the shit out of them. Arguably, could you say that the current deity of choice is society itself manifested in money and the, the, the system going back and round and forth and ultimately if you're taking Ritalin you are taking the communal wafer of agreeing to fit in mm. which is not to say by the way that there are not some people who do have conditions which are massively assisted oh, yeah. with no, medication but this is not me di- dissing medication not here. at all or even the church but the, the overuse of it and the belief that it is a magic bullet to stop people feeling the things that make them people mm. See also confession. After this, uh, Mrs. Coulter, who we've already established in the book, but not the film, uh, snatched away the, the you know was uh, taking part in the the gobbling of the uh, children. Uh, turns up and uh, again, absolutely perfect casting as um, uh, Nicole Kidman walks up. And there's the, this is one of the uh, triumphs of Alexander Desplat's. Uh, score. There's this the golden monkey thing which I'm playing for you now. It's got this kind of this sort of uneasy kind of uh, with with these sort of twinkling light sounds to show her glamour. But there's also the sort of under the surface this you know this powerful will and um, yeah uh, the fact that um, Nicole Kidman is I mean if you look at her here and then in say Moulin Rouge. She is a completely different person in those two films. That's acting. She's unrecognisable between those two characters. Both of them are manipulative, but one of them's a performer, the other's a psychopath. And yet they're both glamorous, so it's just this completely different take on glamour. No, I thought the ca- Nicole Kidman was probably the character that I was most wary about at first but then incredibly satisfied mm-hmm. with um i think the last thing i'd seen her in oh gosh what was that horror film the others that, the others that was the that was the last thing i saw her in before i saw the golden compass and i was a little a little nervous about about what she would do and i think this was also around or near the time that she and Tom Cruise were 
Oh, yeah. We're no longer an item. Uh, well, this so is 2007. Also... They actually canned it uh, just after Eyes Wide Shut. So she'd actually been un- not part of Tom's life for many, many years at that point. It was still, somehow it was still really prominent in my mind. Maybe he yeah. just started dating Katie Holmes. I don't. That was I honestly... 2006 or seven. Yeah, it was around about that time because she wasn't allowed back for the second Batman. She had to uh, stay uh, out of that because the Scientology overlords, you know, made it plain. Again, ridiculous amounts of um, social control. Mm-hmm. Yes. So in my mind, she was still very much wrapped up in all of that mm. insanity. There's a scene a little later on that is almost word for word from the book, and mm-hmm. it was... Is it absolutely... the uh, one, you know, we're about to have a, uh, an argument, which I will win. Yes. Yeah. Yes, we're about to have a disagreement, which I will which I will win. Yep. So just just do what I say. And even the the look that Pullman describes in the book of her looking very... Uh, pointedly at Lyra's bag and asking her to put it down and away. She just, she pulls off wonderfully. And actually, it's important to mention the master here. It's a very small role in the film and it's a relatively small mm-hmm. role in the book. But uh, again, the the casting was absolutely superb and his delivery is fantastic as a man who has to make grave decisions and, and, and uh, you know, how to, you know, how best to handle these, these you know, very difficult shades of grey situations. It's uh, Jack Shepard uh, is the guy, uh, which again means that had he been the one trying to kill Lord Asriel, that would have made him such a more interesting character. Whereas in the film, he's just a sort of like old man. Like uh, you have to kind of infer all of the things about the master that you know from the book, rather than focus on just that he's here as Lyra's legal guardian, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, he was much more. He was much more interesting in in the book, mm. and the way that they kind of explain. That the Egyptians talk about him mm. in the in the book also lend back to the he tried to kill to kill Lord Asriel and kind of trying to help explain that that decision to Lyra. Yeah. You know, the, the master was stuck between a rock and a hard place, so he had to make the best of the situation he had. He didn't want to anger the church because that's where well a lot of his funding and power comes from, but he didn't want to piss off Lord Asriel because well. It's Lord Asriel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, Lord Asriel's just much better established in the in the book by by all of the the stories that everyone tells about him, and even his own very kind of brief appearance towards the beginning and Lyra's reaction to him. Um, the movie is so ridiculous in. <laughs> He definitely registers, him as but a I think a lot of a lot of how you feel about him may be just a hangover from Bond. God, imagine Bond's hangovers. Um, <laughs> I I think what <laughs> I haven't stopped what, drinking, Lana, because the cumulative hangover might kill me. <laughs> I think what what made him just so kind of ridiculous for me in the movie was his the scene where he is captured by the Samoyeds. Uh, yes. Yeah, they added that. They did, and it was well, so unnecessary. They changed his whole his whole capture section. I mean, he wasn't captured by the armored. He wasn't, he wasn't held captured captive. by the Tartar. But yeah, he was held captive by the bears, yeah. not humans. They turned it into a kind of a Roger Moore Bond sequence. It's almost like I would have expected him to go leaping off the mountain and for a Union Jack parachute to come flying out. <laughs> 
that that would be much more likely than mm. than how it was. But no, but they, that importance of that scene is that he gets to stand and goes, "Hmm, Svalbard, home of the ice bears." And we've already heard it at least twice in the film, but he sort of looks pointedly at the camera. Everybody got that? Right, now let's move on. The bears, the bears, well, we also, the bears, the bears, the bears. Oh, my. We, got, we also have to remember in the movie that everything takes place there. There is no other place of importance in this whole universe because the movie implies everything that... Everything happens right there the on that exper- same continent. The experimental station is on self, uh, is there. Svalbard, yep. They, it's all right there. Actually, isn't it in? Uh, if you look at the map that I, I sent you guys beforehand, isn't it actually the 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 Trollesund, um port is in is at Lapland? Yeah. Yes. So that's where it's supposed to be. Ah. But in the film, in the film, everything's on Svalbard because they go right from ah. from the bears. They they reversed it in the film. In in yeah. the book, you go from the experimental station to, to Svalbard yeah. via balloon. Yeah. In the movie, they go to Svalbard first and then ride the bear to the experimental station. Ride the I bear. thought so. I was watching it thinking, <laughs> hang on a minute, this seems the wrong way round. Yeah, uh, when it I saw it first, I, I was thinking to myself, can I re-edit this and is there any point? Um, the, there are bits... Like that join the two together that suggest it's possible that uh, it was originally as written in the book and that uh, you got uh, uh, Experimental Station and Battle First and Bears Second. Uh, and the video game, notably, uh, based on the uh, movie, does it in that order as well. Um, basically, when the, Samoyeds, when the Samoyeds drop Lyra off at the Bear Palace, they could also be dropping her off at the Experimental Station. You just cut a little bit of the dialogue there, and then suddenly Lyra, you know, if you reorganise it, Lyra's being just walking forward in the snow to the Experimental Station, and then you have to kind of reorganise the end bit to get her, you know, in into the, the Bear Place later but it, uh, it, it wouldn't matter that much if you did real it wouldn't suddenly like yeah no it, it, I think they were just trying to get the, the bear thing first and then the because the, the, like, they wanted to end on a battle which is the, sh- the a shabby way to handle a fantasy film well, we, we must have a bit of a fight it's uh, <laughs> Tweedledee's words returning to haunt me okay but the thing about the where they ended it and I'm gonna this is gonna be kind of a jump the thing about where they ended it if they were gonna do a second movie it would have started with them murdering a child that would have been the first thing that happened can we hold the ending back because uh, as far as I'm concerned whatever you feel about how they ended this I feel 10,000 times worse (laughs) they mutilated this film We'll get to that soon. But okay, good. I, I do think that the, the, the changing the order is a part of that as well because the fact that, that the experimental station is so brief and so towards the end means that its purpose as motivation is utterly decimated. Yep. The scene where Lyra frees all of the... or tries to free all of the demons... Mm-hmm. Oh, that's taken out completely. That, but that's a huge part of why she's trying to do this. Mm. We never meet Kaiser. That Kaiser is the uh, 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 demon of the witch, Seraphina Pecola. She was supposed to... He was Kaiser. It was Eric Banner was going to be Kaiser. They just... Boom, it's gone. Yeah. You, you, you get a throwaway line about why her demon's not there. Oh, witch's demons can go far away from them, so you're never going to see That was mine. when Seraphina Pecola turns up... Because they want to animate it. ...delivers an exposition dump and then... Fucks off again. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Wait, wait. Kind of like this movie did. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, burn. Hi all. 
Okay, so we were currently <laughs> you left us with the Egyptians because after Mrs. Coulter, there's the you're right that scene where she she, she well the Aussie, sorry the golden monkey, which by the way is a beautiful collection of words. Just say it to yourselves, folks. The golden the, monkey. The golden it's monkey. so pregnant with potential. Um, after the scene where the golden monkey grabs Pan and, like, if kids didn't understand before, they bloody well understand here mm-hmm. how much pain mm-hmm. can be inflicted by, by touching them. Um, that, that's another sort of throwaway remark. You know, like, you know, it's, it's worse than... It, touching someone's demon with your bare hands. Let's just get that taboo, you know, just explained away in a quick sentence, shall we? That scene plays out, and and you realise that beneath this glamour, there's this shifty woman who's obviously got. And they also cut away a lot of the party. Apparently, they did shoot a lot of this party scene, but they were just like, let's just have what Lyra walk into a room and find a. Uh, there's a trope for this. There's a trope for this. It's it's just basically falling upon a desk full of incriminating evidence. Oh, Glenn could help us with oh, this one. What's we, it called? We actually skipped a chunk of... A really important... We skipped the alethiometer. Oh, of course, yes. Okay. <laughs> we, 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 we went from Lyra's Oxford to... Mrs. Coulter's ha- apartment. And, well, yeah, no, yeah. of course, the, ma- the master gives her the alethiometer, who she immediately labels the golden compass. Okay, do you folks know why they this is so title. stupid? Because <laughs> it's the most ridiculous thing. We've got a, a tradition, the title of the your way. movie in, a, in your movie. I uh, hate in passing. when that happens. Yeah, we've I got a thing. When that happens. We've got a thing where if someone says the name of the movie, we just mutter to each other and clap and leave. Because basically it's like, well, once you've said the name of the movie, that should be the end, right? So you say, boom, the Lion King. He was the Lion King. And then you leave. So, you know. Dun, it, dun, dun. Watching, this was the Golden Compass. And clap and leave. But... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so uh, every time, next time someone says, you know... The, the, Skyfall? What's that? Skyfall? Done. And then you walk out, <laughs> same as Daniel Craig. <laughs> We're done with this. Skyfall. Yeah, no, that, that totally applies. Just say and clap and leave each time. But do you guys know why calling it the Golden Compass is silly? Because well, it's not a compass, but <laughs> apart from that... <laughs> okay, this is based on a real-world thing. When Philip Pullman hmm, sent his uh, manuscript to an American publisher, I believe it was already... Ah, um, oh, no, it wasn't fully written in the UK yet. It was. Uh, it did really well in the UK and then you know, got released worldwide in a bunch of different languages. But um, he had not completely finished the book when he sent this out. And it was he was toying with the idea of calling it Northern Lights. I think originally it was going to be part of the Golden Compasses trilogy. The Golden Compasses... <laughs> Compasses, uh-huh. as in the things you use to draw circles. This is re- in reference to Milton. I believe it's Milton. Paradise Lost. Paradise Lost, which is this mm-hmm. is a retelling of Paradise Lost. Or it started as that. Or it started as that. Which is that these are the dark materials which the Almighty used to create the universe. They're artifacts of creation. It is not and was never anything to do with the alethiometer, which is an instrument, most definitely, but not a compass. The publisher, the professional editor, read the manuscript and went, oh, this is great. I particularly like this golden compass. We're going to call the book The Golden Compass. What's it called right now? Northern Lights? Nah, call it The Golden Compass. And he went, um, uh. actually, it's, uh, it's The Golden Compasses. That's the name of the trilogy. No, 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 no. It's Golden Compass. And so The Golden Compass name stuck, hence the name of this 
film. And every time they say it in the trailers, look, this is a golden compass. It's so important. This golden this compass is, golden is absolutely compass. crucial to the world. This golden compass. Every time leave. they say it, I want to hit them. It's called. <laughs> Very annoying. <laughs> we need a uh, uh, we need a Ron Howard uh, uh, voiceover. It's called a golden compass. It isn't. It isn't. <laughs> <laughs> That makes a lot more sense than calling this stupid lithiometer a golden compass. Yeah. That's, oh, oh my gosh. Shame. May I apologize on behalf of Americans? It goes back I'm to Harry Potter sorry. and the Sorcerer's Stone. Yeah. Because yeah. American kids would be too ignorant to know what a philosopher was. You're a philosopher, even a philosopher's stone. Only philosophy majors oh. know what a philosopher is. Anyway, um, so that that's stupid. And but on the <laughs> on the other hand, the actual artifact of the alethiometer is perfect, as far as I'm concerned. But was it to you? I mean, like this is exactly how I'd imagined it, even down like, to the <laughs> tiny little enameled details on the, uh, the, the the round the dial. As a prop, yeah, I re- I really liked it. I'm not a hundred percent sure I liked how they conveyed the like the symbols glowing and all that. Mm-hmm. When she's using it, it's like... Or the kind of flashbacky, dust-covered... I didn't... Do you like, mean they're using file footage, they're, they're using bits of the film uh, just much composed of dust? Yes. Yeah. I don't like that, because for me, one of the, the key things about it is that everything it tells Lyra is through her interpretation, and I loved the idea mm. that she, she calls it a symbol reader. Yeah. And it's it's not about it showing her flashes of the future in some kind of weird little magic eye picture way. It's about her seeing the symbols that it points to and putting her own interpretation on that. Would it not have been better to have her hold this up and then for us to get, like, uh, that dust sort of comes out and starts to spark across her eyes and, like, she's like, can you see... It becomes apparent that for people watching her, observing her, that dust is not there. Mm. But to Lyra, it's sort of playing out and images are passing across her face and they're kind of raw shaky and you can sort of make out a bear at one point. You're like, okay, it's the iceberg. And then, like, after she's watched it for a while, she then says, it's the bear, da 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 Just something which isn't just footage from the film composed with this after effect we have well and the other the other thing i hated that they 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 could have cut out the whole daniel craig getting captured part mm-hmm. and really worked more with what lyra was doing with the alethiometer because all of a sudden she just knows how to read it oh yeah with there's after no like gradation of sentences uh, worth the, of instruction training yeah no she just straight up knows how to use it which by the way takes away from the fact that no one can read these things you need a giant manual on it and even then you'd have to memorize the manual and be able to get your mind in just the right just like you'd have to it's pretty much she has to go zen to do it mm. and not just anyone can do that she no. is a it's, it's that's like, what makes her special absolutely but it's it's like a tarot it's not special blood it's, it's about the symbols it's about what they represent and it's it's partly about the fact that they can mean different things to different people and I, I the way I always read it was that part of the reason why Lyra can read it when no one else can is because she doesn't have the presumptions about the world that everybody else has. She doesn't have all of those things in her head that fill up all the space. Mm. Because she is this open child, because she has this um, this willingness to accept everything around her and yet question everything around her at the same time, that that's part of why she can read it when nobody else can. Well, they even touch on that in the book. One of them mentions that 
they basically children can read the symbol reader, but the adults need the book to translate it. Mm. And you know that she, because Lyre even asked, "Does that mean when I get older, I won't be able to read it anymore?" And I think it was actually Yorick who says it because that was when their discussion about his armor. Um, but also, there's the change with the golden. The alethiometer. Sorry, I almost screwed that up. <laughs> and the movies, because they go, oh, well, the church has destroyed all of them. Dun, dun, dun. It'll destroy like, you like a time turner. It's like, why, <laughs> why is it such a big... Like, we've not established anything with this device as to why the church would want it destroyed, and there's still supposed to be four of them left in the world in the book. Mm -hmm. So why make this passing, all of them were destroyed? Just so it, you know, this is very rare. I mean, it's rare if there's four others. They could have even used it. Like, if they wanted to go with the whole evil magisterium, they could have had one of the magisterium using another one with the book. And they had one in the books. They had one and a guy with a bunch of books trying to read it because he didn't... He, it yeah. would take him weeks to answer one so question. They could, have, they could have even played that off on how, like, radically different it was that Lyra could understand this by having the magisterium be evil with it. But no, instead we get, oh, suddenly after one, two sentences, she's 100% fluent in this magic, la you know, magic, and Artifact. it's all fine and great. Well, and that easy. was quick and easy, wasn't it? There we go. Mm -hmm. Moving but on to the next never... bit, it's episodic, gotta keep moving, gotta keep moving. <sighs> and there was never any, in even in that little, very short kind of montage of her after Mrs. Coulter takes her from the college and mm. her getting used to kind of high society life, they could have very easily inserted a very short scene of her just playing with it because that's what she did. Mm. And that's what a child would do if you handed them some kind of wonderful, beautiful gizmo. Yeah. gizmo they're going to play with it. And that's what she did. And she she didn't know how it worked. She would put the hand somewhere and then watch it spin and be like, this is neat. She cool. does sort no of do that, and it tells her that um, Mrs. Coulter's coming, and then she, well, it basically says, woman, lightning bolt, baby. Interpret that one, Lyra. Woman, lightning bolt, baby. Woman, lightning bolt, mm -hmm. baby. Oh, okay, Mrs. Coulter's clearly fucking evil. So, yes. <laughs> uh, Lyra runs away from Mrs. Coulter and uh, runs afoul of a bunch of evil... Um, it's never really explained who they are, is it, in the in the film? Are they just, like, are they, they're all gobblers? You just have to kind of in the, assume in, they're people. In they're the all book, looking for Lyra at that point. Well, so, in yeah. the book, they say they are not gobblers. They say these aren't gobblers. They're too, they're too slow and stupid. Right, okay. I think it was important because otherwise she would not have been able to be rescued from them because the gobblers were very good at what they did, and these two were kind of bumbling. Hmm. Yeah. So she's rescued by the Egyptians, and as we all know, the, the this is a really, really quick sequence. Like I think it's again an, at least a ninth, uh, if not more, of the book of really going into Egyptian culture and really going into you know the, 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 how they dress, how they live, going on the waterways, Lyra keeping out of sight, the spy flies, just you know yeah, her making friends with John Farr and Farda Corum and learning to use the because this is basically. Lyra suddenly knowing how to use the golden compass is shorthand because this is her montage. Th yeah, this is basically mm -hmm. her training montage. Uh, so it's like let's get that done quick. And um, but it, but by losing that, um, one of the key things that you lose is the sense of scale in the world yeah. because 
one of the the important bits about how long this journey takes is that that's how you know how far away she's travelled. Yeah. That's how you know how big this world is. Yeah. And the other thing that really affected us in the movie the scale was the damn boats. Mm. There. So, boat. The boat. They had one boat. They in the book, they're boat. supposed to have... Oh, yeah, they went to, like, a, a meeting of a hundred Egyptian boats. Yes! A thousand Egyptians all crowded into one room. Meeting up in the middle of Europe, as I recall. But no, no, there is one boat for all Egyptians forever. And yeah, they were in <laughs> Holland or something, weren't it's, they? It's, it's more like a ship, isn't it? Do, do, right, in America, do you have canal barges? Not... As, yes. Not as prevalent as in the UK, though. Right. We don't have very many canals either. Yeah, fair point. <laughs> the entire Egyptian families are supposed to get together. The six ruling houses, Lord Fa and Father Coram, and they're supposed to create a muster of 150-ish men. Mm. Somehow, 150 people fit on one canal boat <laughs> that suddenly sailed across Europe and turned into another boat without any explanation. <laughs> in the it's a TARDIS. It's not honestly. It's not my favorite section of the book, and this could really have dragged the movie down if they'd spent too long on Egyptian culture. I understand that, like the Ents in uh, uh, Two Towers, you spend too much time on Ent moot. It drags it down, and the whole thing is like, what should we do? Go and rescue the kids, for God's sake! But there are things they could have easily done to, like, I, I if they, my kind of thought process on that is, did we really need to see Lyra attempt to get kidnapped when we could have just had her run to the Egyptians and maybe had a little bit of her, the boat going down and like hearing about police looking for her rather than the attempted kidnap to at least expand the world out a little bit. Mm-hmm. There's things they could have done to at least show the passage of time and, you know, maybe even had groups, other boats, the boats stocked together and families talking that way to, yeah. you know, oh, we're going to meet up north to go rescue the kids. All spread yeah. the work. The other thing is, if you'd established Mar Costa at the beginning, there's a wonderful little passage which says something along the lines of Mar Costa, who had boxed her ears on two occasions and given her hot gingerbread on three. It, first off, it establishes that she's not all sweetness and light, but that you know mm-hmm. she can be she can be a fierce, dangerous uh, uh, person to be around. But also that she is kindly. It gives you those wonderful shades of grey adults, uh, but someone to be trusted and, and someone that Lyra's sort of afraid of. But then later she proves herself by turning up at that exact point. However, what happens is Lyra runs away, gets. Uh, conveniently almost kidnapped and then gets conveniently rescued by people who go, oh, we've been tracking you since, who gives a fuck? The movie's kind of a blur in my brain because I'm trying to forget it as quickly as possible. But don't they miss out the whole section of the fact that she was basically being fostered by Egyptian family for most of her... Yeah, yeah, they skipped that completely. You know, like, it's not a huge, like, impact to the story, but it definitely affects Lyra's character... And her relationship with these people, she sound herself with. Egyptians also basically tell her about her origin. They fill in who you were as a baby, who both your parents were. Now, in the film, they have Mrs. Coulter reveal this stuff at the end, which I am not altogether against. I actually really like the idea of, at the end, this woman you've been loathing the whole time turns out to be your mother. That's, I mean, that's again where the Star Wars thing comes in. You know, no, Lyra, I am your mother. However, she also goes, oh, and Lord Asriel? Yeah, that's just your father. And that's, again, like, they tell her 
Lord Asriel and Mrs. Coulter in one go back in the book in the Egyptian section, and then she tells mm-hmm. them her both. How about happy medium? They discuss Lord Asriel is actually your father, and that's the big revelation with the Egyptians. And uh, Lyra is like blown away by that, and then like with that you can then like build the story of her, uh, you know, her birth, the whole affair with her, her mother, and all of that drama, and how Marcosta featured in that, and just like give Lyra what feels like a home. It feels like in wrenching out that section, the idea of Lyra having a family and a home that was actually a genuine, viable place for her to go to was dispensed with. But then at the, like, they, they could be quite tight-lipped over, you know, who the mother is, and they always just say, you know, your mother. But then at the end, Mrs. Coulter in the film reveals, I am your mother. That, by the way, what I've just said there works perfectly well. Would have been fine to have just an extra five minutes in the film while the Egyptians tell Lyra about the circumstances of her birth, and then Mrs. Coulter then follows up on it at the end. And, you know, just if you'd had an establishing scene with... Um, I can't remember. Maybe Marcosta does show up at the very beginning, like chasing after Lyra and the kids. She, she's supposed to be there, but they don't ever drop. There's, it. There, yeah, there's kind of a brief scene. I think of the Where kids running her. past her, and she's visible. Right. But I don't think that there was ever any kind of establishing of who this woman was. There's no impact. There's no scene between them. No. Yeah. And no. the other thing with this is, you know, with the change of <laughs> who gets kidnapped. Sorry, uh, with the change of who gets kidnapped. With it becoming Billy Coster, that could have been a lot more heartfelt and like a, a very big impact for Lyra if mm. they'd continued that thread. Where it's like this is effectively your foster mother. She was looking after you. Yeah. She was trying to raise you. This would have basically been your brother. Yeah. And he's now dead. And the emotion that could have been a much stronger emotional impact than what they did do with that. I know that's jumping a bit, but no, no, no. You're right. And the at the beginning that this phantom scene I'm talking about, which uh, conflates several many many pages in the book, just showing Marcosta saying, you know, stop playing around with her, Billy. You know, just she's only going to lead you into, into trouble or something. Maybe not that. It seems a bit sort of like you know something which basically makes it kind of like you are welcome with the with the Egyptians but you're trouble as well I can tell that Um, but just to show her being affectionate to Billy so you felt the ache there they could have easily, instead of doing the war, they could have had Lyra attempt to steal the boat. Yeah, and also not just steal the boat, but try to find the bung, which is one of the things that uh, is particularly charming. She, <laughs> even if we had found the bung, we wouldn't have sunk your boat. Basically, like she's convinced there's a cork in each boat, and she raided the uh, boat with a bunch of kids before, and uh, she tells John Farr, this great Egyptian leader, you know, makes him laugh a lot, and him being big and imposing and then laughing at her suddenly makes him more personable and it just kind of puts Lyra's tiny silly little world in perspective in the context of the larger world because that's the other thing because the music is and then when Lyra goes war see you later and all the kids are like yeah it's great you did war the actual words in the book are children playing together how pleasant to see what could be more innocent and charming in fact of course Lyra and her peers were engaged in deadly warfare. These kids take this totally seriously. So if you play the music as like sort of a bit nervous and a bit sort of, yeah, war, our team versus your team, da 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 that, and make it sort of like, you know, that they take it seriously, but that the adults sort of smile to themselves, just sort of like, you know, all these bloody kids. 
kids. Blah, 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 blah. Just mm-hmm. so that like the kids in the audience don't get too nervous. Like, are these kids going to kill each other with sticks and stones? But also that you know, with the adults smiling, the kids are like, okay, so this is sort of semi under control, but not patronizing either audience or children on screen. Instead, it's like, oh, silly kids doing a silly things. Bugger that. Chris White does seem to not really understand kids. Which is ironic, because about a boy, he does a, like, that. that's a good kid actor doing a good kid role. Oh, what a day! What a lovely day! He can, he can do one child at a time, but more than that, and he's <laughs> like, whoa, he's herding I, cats. I think I, I did, the other thing that I felt cheated of with the Egyptians, and they kind of, they hint at it a bit, but it felt a lot more emphasised in the book, is that the Egyptians really feel like a group of real people yeah. who have their own stuff going on. Yeah. In the film, they are there solely to advance Lyra's cause. Oh yeah, they're a, um, a giant taxi. But the fact that the the, the gobblers have taken Billy and uh, Tony Macarius as well, and that um, no, they haven't. Tony Macarius. Oh, sorry. Yeah, Tony yeah. Macarius is not Egyptian though. Egyptian. Oh. No, he's just a. No, he's kid just a little with, boy with a, with a right. poor drunken mother. Okay, I do apologize. Who will forget that she even saw him? Okay, my my but, uh, my error there. But the the idea that Egyptian kids have been taken and that they are kind of they have this this plan that they're going to go and get their kids back anyway, and Lyra just sort of becomes part of that, mm-hmm. rather than it feeling like you know the the child from the prophecy has turned up and now we all have to go and do stuff. <sighs> okay, and that's something we need to talk about is that the movie mentions the prophecy in passing never states what it is never says anything about it other than there's a prophecy and it's the most ridiculous like there is a force at work inside my body which i must unlock will you teach me of course i will you are the child of the prophecy really no prophecy you jackass whereas in the book they establish it fairly early that there's something important about lyra that there's something going on that has to do with her that's from the witches that but eventually... it's got sobering tones because the way it's described, it's like, you know, there will be a great betrayal, but she's going to be the one doing the betrayal, which then says, oh my God, something terrible is going to happen early on. But in this, there's, it just goes, oh, she's a special child and she is destined to do special stuff. Who gives a flying fig? Exactly. Seriously. Well, and if, you know, if we thought the Egyptians got completely screwed over by the representation of this movie, the witches got even, you know, even oh more. God. Just yeah, yeah. That you was mean even... the witch and her many, many like and CGI. all of her friends, all of her many friends, her imaginary CGI friends. Yeah, it the was witches the most actually feature a lot more in the Subtle Knife than uh, um, yeah, Northern Lights. Uh, so Which it if, felt like maybe they were going to put them in later or something. But, but. It's, it seems so. But if they wanted to establish them as any kind of thing for a later movie, they really needed to hit it here. Oh yeah, oh, yeah absolutely. Which they were such a you know, like yeah. You know, they can even you, you don't need the witch's console like you have in the book where you know like you get you get this whole like of history. type thing. Isn't it? Yeah. They could have easily just replaced the witch's console with Seraphina Pecola and her have her go, let me go gather my clan and disappear for the rest of the movie until the fight at, you know, the That would have made station. a lot more sense. Hmm. That would have been an easy way of bringing her in, explaining the, the prophecy to Father Coram and Lord Fa. And, you know, how you could even, you know, segue correctly into the bear. 
Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I don't even mind how they brought you know they with Lee Scoresby and how they changed the bear section, but like the the dropping of the witches console and like the entire storyline with the witches and the prophecy and the warring witches clans. It's, it just seems so weird. It's like especially. You know, Eva Green, I thought, did a good job with what little, very limited sections she had, and she probably could have done a great job, but she definitely got the short end of the stick on it, that. It feels like the difference between going on a European trip and taking your time as you go through each one, visiting museums and the places of interest and learning from the people there, and going to Epcot Center and running around that mini Europe that they've got and going, right, we're going to have, uh, I mean, we're now in Germany, now have a bratwurst, right now run to Paris, eat some French sticks. <laughs> Just, it's a giant food court. <laughs> yeah, that's a. That's I said a, French sticks. <laughs> baguette. Oh, baguette. Yeah, it's like that's that's the thing with this movie is like let's rush through anything that could be like interesting to get to big fight that's not particularly well choreographed to get mm. to another big fight which isn't particularly well choreographed. When the fights aren't what this is about, no. that's not what they should be focusing on. It's a lot on. of sound and, and fury. The bear fight and the big battle, that they specifically the bear fight, looks impressive, but it's really not about anything because you've not carefully invested in both. Absolutely. And the mm-hmm. lack of, of establishing Serafina Pecola as anything other than a narrator means that you, I, I really lost much sense of the witches as people, as part yeah. of this world. Mm-hmm. Well, they, it's like they tried to do a Gladriel thing without understanding why that section worked. <laughs> well, the witches don't really establish as people because it fails the witch Bechtel test. No witch talks to another witch. Yeah, there was never any about anything other there than was the never any side child. Well, no, not even tell about me, that. Tell me one other witch that was in this, apart from the, the, the stunt mm-hmm. extras who were flying around in the battle. Nope, there was none. No, Aruta Scardi. Yeah. But people talk no. about the witches quite a lot, don't they? You know what I said before about the bears, the bears, the bears, the ice bears, the bears? You oh, get the witches, the witches, the witches, the witches, the witches. The, witches, the, witches. the Quakers, the bakers, the candlestick makers. <laughs> Lions, tigers, and bears, am I? It was just... Uh, You're a witch, aren't okay. you? Yes. <laughs> Um, also, Father uh, Corum is one of the only miscast adults. Even though he's great as Serafina Peckler, the guy playing Father Corum is such a nobody. Could have where been is Christopher he? Lee. Courtney. Yeah. Well, it's like they had Christopher Lee for that one little bit. Then why not just make him Father Corum? See, I read it to Lyra as uh, John Hurt. Um, he, you know, oh. he was sort of a, a wobbly John Hurt, but like I basically did him as the storyteller. So he's like, hey, Lyra. Now I'm going to tell you about how to use the symbol reader. And um, just, yeah, like, you know, <laughs> come in here. I'm going to give you some secrets. One of those witches used to be my lover. And um, the, That's not something you say to children. Yeah, no, that's uh, inappropriate. Yeah. Oh, actually, no, actually, what happens is, um, doesn't Serafina say, like... That was, right, yeah, that was the question which, that she asked yeah, her, which, which is not... Which used to be my lover, and it's like, like what's she going to see in this thing? Like, does she, is she going to see individual positions? What, what? Because that's how this thing works. It's like a tiny cinema in there. She's, like, sticking like, her wow. eye up to it like a viewmaster with dust in it. Plus the fact, <coughs> because she sees him as a young man, when it cut away from it, and she said it was far decorum. Was, was it? Like, how did she 
get that from that completely not far decorum looking guy. Here's how you do that. You just have him be young and have her touching his face and then just him slowly the dust reassembles itself into the older version. It's just like... Just top of my head stuff is better than the things they had months to decide on what to do. It was so bad. Or you actually do it like the book? I mean, heaven forbid we actually, you know, have Serafina acknowledge the fact that she was in love with John Farr and wanted to stay with him and they've had a child together. Really? John Farr and not Father Corum? Oh, not John Farr. Not, not John Farr. I'm sorry. Father Corum. Got my You've been going up. around behind my back, John Farr. Oh, <laughs> uh, that would have been a great drama. But no, the, the, the Father Corum in the film was like, oh, okay, hello, Lyra. How's it going? I'm going to teach you how to use the symbol. <laughs> Speak up! I have no charisma. I am literally presence. a blob. Mm-hmm. Of like, I'll just tell you exactly how to read it, then Paul you sponge. can talk to me for two seconds instead of establishing the like warm friendship that we had. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's the thing. She's uh, he's <laughs> as strong a character or important relationship as the yeah. master of Jordan was to Lyra yeah. in the end. Like, this is a father, fi- for lack of you know, a father figure who she learns from. And learns to be a better person because of this girl. Like, by the way, in hero's journey terms, she has mentors up the wazoo. Oh my god! Oh, she so does. <sighs> so many. We haven't even but got. There's two more of them. We still haven't got to. But she honestly really needs them in the books, at least, to establish hmm. her going off on her own to where she goes. She she needs a really strong stabilizing force early to mm. get her to where she's going with the rest of the series in mind for mm. this book yeah it's it's and for the film definitely it's a lot mm. it's a lot of mentors um so yeah they get to Trollesund um which isn't in Svalbard which isn't in it's Svalbard it's, Lap, it's the main port <laughs> at Lapland home of the Nor- the Lapland witches near Norway a small town not like mega yeah, city it's supposed to be like like 12 buildings all together. <laughs> it's supposed to be a very small place. Yeah, I mean... Small. You know, not this gigantic, sprawling city that, you know, we got to just see a giant bear run through. <laughs> okay, so the, she meets two new characters who leap in and uh, pretty much give her information dumps again, but also they include some stuff about themselves. Like I said, like everyone gets an information dump and one sentence about themselves to establish who they are. Um, Lee Scoresby, the yes. so perfectly cast. Oh my I gosh, that was so have great. Dreamed of a better casting for uh, Sam Elliott as uh, uh, Lee Scoresby. In fact, perfect. such perfect casting that I, I pretty much put him in New Century simply as a as a reaction to this because Lee Scoresby made such a, a, a huge impact on me as a, as a character and as soon as I saw this film I then extrapolated forward what happens to Lee and it was just Lee in the book is very kind of look I'm an aeronaut but I'm not all that fussed about you know the air I do this as a job and could you please tell me Serafino how come uh, you know uh, what's in it for me with this thing and he goes on to basically make incredibly profound sacrifices and um it's, it gets an arc, and it's it's a wonderfully performed character. Oh, Sam Elliott just comes on and is himself. He's even wearing his own hat. He bought this thing along. <laughs> they were like, right. He was like, well, you're not going to let me do this, but I, I would like to wear my Stetson. It's been in the family all, you know, it's been in my house for many decades, and I never got to wear it on a movie. And they were like, well, we'll sort of make a replica. It doesn't quite fit me right. Okay, well, you can wear your own hat then. Fine. What do we know? Well, <laughs> 
that <laughs> remains to be seen. And I mean, I just fell in deep love with this character. So it's uh, a wonderful hat. Yeah, basically, General <laughs> Curtis is kind of an extrapolated version of uh, Lee having gone through a different life. I remember vividly the horrors I saw on the field strewn with dying and dead on that first evening. Peach blossoms settled upon the bodies of Confederate and Union alike. It would have seemed almost peaceful to anyone unable to hear the screaming. And actually, if you think about it, um, I've made... And I didn't even realize this until I was researching this movie. I've made Butler very much like a young Lee as well. Hello there, Virgil. Hello, sir. Got you on stable duty already. And I'm helping to cook the lunch this morning. Be sure to wash those hands first. Why? Glad I'm not here for lunch. David, look after Virgil here for me. It's his first day. Make sure he washes his goddamned hands. Pardon my French. You betcha, Frank. Thank you, Mr. Butler. And my best to the wife. Thank her again for not shooting us in the hearts. Ah, oh, son. She was only gonna shoot you in the testicles. Here, James, mount up. So it's kind of like you got you get my cake, my young cake and my old cake. You get to eat them both. <laughs> he, he basically just sort of turns up and, and gets the very light version of, of what he's you know supposed to be doing in the story. I mean, it's, it, it's not like there's a huge, huge scene in this which gets cut out of his. But then he introduces you to Yurik Bernison. Now, do you guys remember who was originally going to be cast in this? As Yurik? Oh, no. If you watch the first two trailers, the teaser and trailer one, it's a different voice entirely. Third trailer, it's Ian McKellen. <clears throat> it was a, a, a theatre-trained uh, actor named Nonzo Anonzi. He's this massive black guy. He was in Game of Thrones Season 2. He was the guy Danny locks in a vault. Uh, mm. And... He, he was the guy they were taking a chance on at voicing um, Yorick. Are you going to enjoy in this turkey shoot? Yes, I have a contract with a child. And then at some point along the way, I'm inferring this entirely, they went, we need a star. And then they kicked out his voice, having recorded all the dialogue, I assume, and then brought in Ian McKellen. I will serve you in your campaign until you... Have a victory. And Chris White actually has the temerity to say, you know, I'm thinking about Gollum, who's this sort of CGI creation. I think that Yorick Bernison is kind of on a par with that. Uh, no. no, he's not, because you basically had another guy read all his lines and then Ian McKellen came in and did it again. He's not. Andy Serkis was right there in the trenches. He, he formed that character himself. And here's the thing. I love, genuinely in my heart, few people with this powerfully. Ian McKellen's up there for me. His Gandalf has set himself in stone as maybe my favourite literary, uh, well, cinematic literary character. And I adore this man. And I adore his Yorick Bernison, but there is a trade-off in having him as Yorick Bernison because he's Ian goddamn McKellen. And you know what Ian McKellen looks like. So when you hear Gandalf's voice, deep and booming, coming out of a, a, a polar bear... That's an old polar bear. Yeah. <laughs> what, what kind of work is this for... Actually, it was Father Corrin. What kind of work is this for an armored bear? Paid work! I am an armored bear! War is the sea I swim in. He's fantastic. But he's also Gandalf. Yes. <laughs> well, and as, as I was kind of saying with Megan when we were watching it, you know, like, you know, 
think if we could just pretend this movie didn't happen and didn't do it with the modern with all the motion capture stuff that's come since then mm. like and all you know having the guys from Planet of the Apes like Andy Serkis doing the bears mm-hmm. it would just be so incredible to see what they would actually do with this versus oh, yeah. what we got the level of detail and actual you know getting the, the actual physical performances out of the bears rather like Yorick and Yofa were like hero bears all the other bears were just the same guy with two different suits of armor and they were all farmed out to a different uh, uh, effects house and I think what what disappointed me most about this whole section with with him is when he got his armor back he just puts it right on oh yeah there's no he no does not oiling it up it. he doesn't meat. he doesn't take care of it he doesn't he's just like all right cool I'm good let's go and there's no like obvious care to it, whereas in the book, it's he's very careful about describing it as this is my soul. Mm. And I don't, does he say that in the movie? He, my he armor says, is made of sky iron. He says yeah. his armor is to him what Lyra's demon mm. is to her. But she but never really seems said, to comprehend that. She never he thinks about. He doesn't show anything. Yeah. He doesn't do anything to demonstrate no. that that is the case. Yeah. And and he changes in and out of it so very quickly in other scenes. Like, I think there's maybe one other scene where he is actually wearing, maybe two other scenes where he's actually wearing his armor, and the rest of it he's just like, oh, let's just leave it behind. I'll go faster. And he just kind of. I'm going to going when they go find Billy, and then he shows up, and then there's the fight where he's suddenly like, oh, hey, here's Billy. Oh no, I the bear's wearing armor in like two and a half seconds. That's not how armor works. Yeah, he's in and out of it so fast. It's described that he can put it on very quickly because he knows it so well. Yeah, but I still call. BS that he's putting it on in like three seconds. So is yeah. it like Iron Man three armor, just like and it's on him. basically crotch blade last. <laughs> also, like uh, the, Pullman didn't like the armor that much. I think he liked it on top, but not beneath. Because when he stands up, it's loose and clanking, and it's got all these like mm-hmm. weak spots. And he's like practically, like, if he leans forward in the right direction, his heart's right there. Exactly, it's like He Man armor. Yeah. Panels that Did go I... down the middle of his chest, but they don't really cover much of him. No. I, I always interpreted like armored bear as like armored tank, mm. like every square well, inch of him. It's like is... a, a bear that's also a tank. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but no, no, he has a little chapeau rather than a helmet. Yeah, and I mean, it specifically says in the book that he has a helmet. But it's just like this little part that kind of sort of covers his head. Yeah. But it's, it's not horns and stuff too, as I recall. But you know, I still I, I like the look of it. I, you know, again, I like the look of pretty much everything in this film. There's there's practical elements which are missing, but and there are sometimes when, when uh, Philip Pullman's imagination runs away with him and he hasn't sat down and actually drawn what he's describing. Like if mm-hmm. I like every costume I have to come up with and I describe to Antonio, we go through a process of like you know what how is this going to work in what feels like the real world we go through a wetter process like we have to fabricate this every single thing has to mean something you can't just put stuff on just because it's cool um but like oh you can't (laughs) but i'll like there are bits that those guys in like the thing that i think bothers me most in the whole trilogy is those guys with the wheels in that third book that he spends way too long with 
there are some times when when Pullman gets into his head uh, uh, how something should be and and it might not work that well on screen and he is so graceful about you know well these are they made the best movie they could and there were certain concessions and he gives some slightly barbed comments of the acting was probably better than it was it was the performances were absolutely as good as they could have been yes it's a great looking movie and uh, he, he kind of like kept quiet about the rest of it but then later over time you know, people have been asking about him about it. It's like, oh, he's a total fucking farce. Uh, he, he doesn't swear. <laughs> he's a very proper Oxford gentleman, and um, he's very reserved. And if you listen to those audio books, his oh voice gosh. is magically lyrical, and he really sort of pulls you in. But at the same time, it's very precise and or almost persnickety about the way he describes everything. So it's it gives you that tone the whole way through. I love audiobooks that are re- read by the author. I only ever listen to Bill Bryson books read by Bill Bryson, for example. And um, the fact that rather than having him affect the girls' voices as well, they have a full cast as well. Aside from the music, which is rubbish, uh, the you know, it's fantastic audio drama. And again, this is why I reorchestrated all three audiobooks with the music from Lady in the Water... For the Golden Compass and Northern Lights, The Sixth Sense for The Subtle Knife, and The Village for The Amber Spyglass. So that's three Shyamalan movies. At least two of those are maligned Shyamalan movies, so they're scores that people just haven't heard. And those scores just work so wonderfully with Pullman's worlds. So from this point on in the podcast, until further notice, I'm going to play you the music from Lady in the Water, because that is the unofficial spiritual soundtrack to Northern Lights for me. actually used part of the climax of this score in the original Golden Compass teaser trailer and it felt familiar and I'd forgotten the film and from that point on when I re-listened to the Lady in the Water soundtrack it felt displaced like this is the score that should have been this is the film that should have been the ghost of the right movie few times I've been through a book I've done it through through the audio and I have to say I don't think I've ever heard a better like audio book the the cast is fantastic the people they get to do all of the readings are incredibly expressive and besides maybe Stephen Fry's version of Harry Potter I don't know if there's there's anything I've enjoyed more <coughs> as an audiobook and you okay yours this okay this is you, that's, let's, that's let's watch her dig out of her own hole here. No, no, no. It's. I don't think about New Century as an audiobook. 
really because I experience it as an audio before I ever experience it as a book. Okay. Radio. So I, I it's will take more, that. It falls more into like yeah, more into radio drama for me than it does into <laughs> which and I've I've heard some crap radio dramas. What oh, was the, the BBC actually did um, a bunch of short radio dramas. around about 2003-ish uh, Northern Lights, oh. Subtle Knife uh, Amber Spyglass they're about two hours and a bit long each and mm-hmm. they have similar kind of rushing through, rushing through uh, and some re- some bad delivery but some surprisingly great performances Like they've got Terence Stamp as Lord Asriel who's perfect mm. again and uh, the, the Lyra they've got is not bad at all uh, So there are good bits but again they're in such a rush to get through and there's a lot of sort of oh what's happening now Pan and now da 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 that's happening and like describing what's going on it's definitely aimed at the little kids but again it's describing uh, very deep and dark things Lyra what the hell are you doing here let go and I'll tell you how dare you come in here I've just saved your life explain yourself girl that wine's poisoned the master put some white powder in it right back in make a noise and you wish you were dead do you understand yes ow you stood on me again I'll move that. Cases, my lord. Put them on the table. Lord Azrael watches the butler, choosing his moment before kicking the table leg and sending the decanter toppling. A flood of poisoned wine streams over the expensive, if threadbare, carpet. Damn you, Wren. Look what you've done. I'm truly sorry, my lord. I must have been closer than I thought. I Get something to clear up the mess. Hurry up. Of course. I, I felt that way about the BBC audio dramas of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. They mm-hmm. were very rushed and they had some wacky sound effects and hmm. they just weren't they weren't all that great. I think the only audio drama that, that they've done Never. fairly recently was was that I enjoyed was Neverwhere. Mm-hmm. I felt like that one was was all right. That one was pretty was, the cast was the great. cast was excellent and I thought they, they did it a lot of justice and but there are few like audio drama readaptations that the the BBC has done of, of books that I've felt really good about, and I think probably never worth the only one I can think of right now. I do wonder if this film would have benefited from some like god mode narration because it it does it, it threads through the book, and having none of it at all does make it feel kind of bare, don't you think? And it, it does mean that there's too much weight on the characters sometimes to um, describe to, their to situation. Describe yeah. things that no human being in that situation would ever describe. Considering how what they've already done, I feel like it would have been too blunt. With on top of the the this is an armored bear. He wears armor. <laughs> that well, they that, did with the bear. There are places you can get it in which makes it feel natural. Uh, uh, the Bilbo narration at the beginning of Lord of the Rings works very well after the prologue from Galadriel. There, yeah, there are certain god mode, like and, uh, bits with Saruman going, and Gandalf the Grey rides to Isengard seeking my counsel. It's just like things that people are saying can be said when you aren't seeing them say that 
and thus that gives you your narration. Mm. And also, by it's very sly how they do that in Lord of the Rings. It's it generally tends to be characters who feel a sort of sense of detachment from the things that they're observing. Mm. So you do get that that third person God perspective feel from them. Like this so, is something that they're observing rather than participating in. So maybe even having the church as kind of a, a spy entity spying on her oh, no, activities the and church, whereabouts. But, but I they, it would do it in such a No, I don't want to know a way. damn thing about the church in this world. No, like, they were better at just being this insidious sort of off the uh, you know, off in the periphery. Like even the cutting back to Fra Pavel that we do in the film and talking to Mrs. Coulter is too much as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, but if they're going to do it, we might as well let them do something instead of just sit there and be this evil thumb-twiddling nothing that they were. Mm, maybe. I, I, I would find it difficult to write them. The way it's done in the film, sort of uh, D- Derek Jacobi looking blankly with the eyes of a shark into the camera and going, we must do this for the children. I, 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 I can't stand that kind of <laughs> characterization. I can't. It's awful. He was absolutely... Well, maybe that's something that the witches could have done then as kind of a... The holders of the prophecy of the child yeah. or predicting her movements. Maybe that would have Basically, been a if more you put, positive. Create some tension for Serafina going up against another clan leader. Like the, the clan leaders who are uh, loyal to uh, Lord Asriel versus Serafina who's loyal to Lyra. And, and it being, you know, we'll just see reason. Lord Asriel wants to keep Lyra alive. Why aren't we working together? And it's like, no, we must. Da, 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 da. And then you, that creates the sort of the, the greater world tension. Instead, we get no witch discussion whatsoever. And that's basically, that's creating new scenes that describe what absolutely could have happened behind the scenes in this book. You know how they do that in Lord of the Rings and it's really, really good? And it's not as if they don't already have form for Serafina doing the narration. You know, mm. they brought her in That's at the true. beginning, but it was so quick and so rushed and so pointless. <laughs> Just to give us the old uh, 101. Mm. I uh, actually didn't even know it was her doing it until you said that. I was like, oh, yeah, that's whose voice that was. Okay. Uh... Um, it didn't even connect for me. We can talk about the severed child now if you if you really, really want to. Poor little... Billy well, in, Costa. in the movie, Billy. it's Billy Costa, yeah. but in the book, that is that is Tony. Makarios. Now, so Billy that's... Costa's barely characterized in the book anyway, so I could see why they would conflate them. There's something so pathetic and so sort of like, you know, that he was never really going to be anything other than a street urchin, which makes it kind of... that. That's no excuse for how horribly mistreated this kid is. The, the idea of, well, he's just a wastrel and we'll sweep him away under the gutter. This is exact. This is a perfect example of the people that are swept away by an uncaring society. That's why it being Tony Marcarius actually really works. Or if it's Billy Costa, make show that there is a stigma against Egyptians in in Oxford from landlopers. Mm-hmm. But there's none well, of that. It's just like you know, oh, it's Billy Costa, my buddy. And his, another... his performance is terrible. So. Yeah, it's it's just absolutely awful. Hmm. There was there was another I think it was another podcast I listened to said there's no one more more dead than a white female child and there's no one less dead than a black prostitute. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how society views it. And I think that really encapsulates what this is: is there's there's no one less dead than a than a child of a drunk woman who doesn't even necessarily remember that she had him. Yeah. <laughs> But I think that, that this is a really important, and this is a really telling part of coming up to the um, up to the station, which I think is 
part of why it, it it loses a lot in the film because they don't immediately go to the station after that. They go to uh, they the bears first. They distract you with bears, basically. They distract yeah. you with cool bears fighting each other, knocking each other's jaws off. <laughs> but really, the the child is so much more terrifying if they actually gave him the time and the weight that mm. they should have, mm. including his his funeral. Because as soon as he dies, they're like, "Oh no, Billy's dead, and Mom's you know holding him as he's dying." And well, no, this thing, he doesn't die in the movie. Yes, he does. No, they literally get him back, and that is the last you see of him. Yeah, Mar- yeah but- Marcosta cries, and it seems like he might be on the way out. But then we move straight but on then, to a but- battle and sound of. But fury. then we have a fight. Yeah, yeah that's so true. They, so they, they they remove the emotional impact of the fact that he is even that like he's been mm-hmm. separated. He's died because of this. Yeah, or even that and his demon watching. is elsewhere. Because they don't want to upset like, the really children. This is a film. This is a book written about upsetting things that happen to children, reframed as a story for a movie, wherein they don't want to upset any children. Can you see how they were setting themselves up to fail here? It's absolutely the worst. But that they just kind of skip over this whole part, and this is where ballless, gutless, soulless. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) And this is where Lyra really gets to show her compassion in the book is that everyone else is scared to go touch, the, even, like, touch the child. Even mm. the adults are terrified and she rolls up to be anywhere near him yeah. That because he doesn't have his demon. And they're they're scared. The adults are terrified, whereas she shows him compassion. And when they take away the one thing he has is he's holding this dried mm. fish. And they, yeah, they, that's, they, yeah. All, that's all he has left because his demon has been cut away at the station, yeah. which the book does a really good job of establishing as terrifying to be separated from your soul mm. whereas in the book they 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 touch on that quite a bit and they they emphasize how absolutely awful that is mm. and the adults take this fish away from him and she just nails them in the book like how dare you do this this is all he had left don't you laugh at him for having this they cut his demon away and this is all he has you give it back and and they fed it to dogs and that fierceness in there makes us absolutely fall in love with Lyra that she has these principles that she would so angrily shout them at adults Mm -hmm. for being callous well, and it even expands the relationship. If you didn't love her by this point already, you will now. Carry on. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, uh, it even expands the relationship between her and York because he calls the adults out on it as well. Mm. He's like, how can you show more fear than this little girl? She has stood up because when she gets back with not Billy, mm-hmm. you know, the, uh, the Egyptians are like, oh, I don't want to. Yeah. I don't want to go near it. And he you know, he just calls them out on it. It's like, no, she has braved the wild, she has braved you know, and brought this child back and you're showing fear where this girl has not. Yeah. How dare you? Mm-hmm. And where this child needs some compassion. He needs he needs someone to take care of him because he's lost everything. And she actually ends up in the book the kid does die. The boy oh, dies. Yeah. And she carves him a coin. Uh, reminiscent of in the early chapters of the book in in Lyra's uh, in in Lyra's Jordan where she finds uh, coins of uh, with the name of the demon of the Jordan scholars that have passed away and are kept in the crypts. She takes a coin and borrows a knife and carves his demon's name onto his coin and puts it in his mouth and says, "If I can give you the same respect that a Jordan scholar has, I hope that's enough." 
Again, this and is pieces that she's learned and she's decided to use this as a, as a custom of respect. Absolutely. And all of these parts as well, they inform on each other. The the missing scene that we discussed where she finds the, the demons in the cages mm-hmm. um, and, mm-hmm. and everybody's revulsion about what that means. Yeah. That these are, these. this is like pieces of children that they have yeah. cut away and put in boxes. And, um, the, and he's compared, uh, Tony Mokaris minus his demon is, is one would look at a child with a severed arm. Yeah. It's it's horrifying. Mm-hmm. Isn't yeah. it? Um and the uh, the idea that um the emphasis that this puts on how important the demons are mm. and how inherently a part of them they are makes the scene where she pretends to be Yorick's demon yeah. that much more impactful because that's what she's basically saying. It's it's a fake out because she's trying to trick um Joffa Ragnarsson. But ultimately, what she's saying there is Yorick and I have bonded on such an in, a, a basic, inherent level that we are one. Mm-hmm. And they are. The, but they didn't want to put that in, and everything we've discussed just now, because they didn't want to upset the children. Another major important scene, which actually plays into the end of the, uh, uh, what should have been the end of the film, is when she goes to talk to Yorick again, she tries pulling uh, tries to get uh, Pan basically goes to get Yorick's attention, crawls under the fence and crawls towards him as trying to stretch as far as he can away from her. And there is a certain amount of feet that a demon can get before the wrenching sensation on both their hearts becomes unbearable. And again, that's something that can be shown so visually, so potently, so powerfully, and so upsettingly in the film that they did not have the balls to do and they did not consider important to do. And there's and well, you know, York can got a short end of the stick too with the whole training where he's teaching Lyra about the fact that bears can't be tricked, which is such an important section for what happens mm. in Svalbard. Sets up like, all the tension. Yeah, yeah, that's and it, exactly. It shows that Ragnar's weakness is not is that he's not even really a bear anymore. He's trying too hard to be a man, but they don't. Mm-hmm. They skip over that again. Mm. Right, they skip over so many just essential parts of who the characters are just to get to the action that it, it really hurts any kind of moment that otherwise would be incredibly impactful. It hurts my heart. Doesn't You're he... killing your parents, Chris White. You're killing your parents. Does, uh, <laughs> doesn't he offer, does he make his armor out of gold or something? Because gold's important to humans. Yes, and uh, Yorick mm-hmm. says that you know, gold armor is, is scrap. Pointless. It's useless yeah. to bears. <laughs> oh, so, mm-hmm. Well, it's useless to anybody. Gold's yeah. incredibly soft. Well, and he builds the he builds his university, and he builds all of the stuff out of imported marble. Mm. And they never it never even gets to the sense that because he has done all this, that suddenly the bears are living any differently than how they have yeah. ever uh-huh. lived. It's just oh, we're at the bear castle now. Okay, the bears have a castle. The fact That's... that he's supposed to carry a doll that looks like Mrs. Coulter to emulate the fact he wants a demon. Mm. There is this a doll, also, but it has black hair. It doesn't look like her at all. Mm. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. But the significance is never explained in the movie. You know? There's there's a very brief point at the very beginning where everybody has a good laugh because he wants a demon, but it's so fast and it's back. What at this point? Mm. And also they say he's ago. a bear. He's a bear. He's an armored bear, as opposed to a panzerbjorn. Where Lyra then later goes, a panzerbjorn. Of course, I thought they were talking about a person. Now I realize that's an armored bear, and I should have paid more attention to that. Mm. It's yes. it's laying down the seeds for later. And all of these bits and pieces again feed into this idea of, of 
authenticity and mm. of of the the being a, a person who is driven by their own internal impulses, which is, of course, what the church wants to clamp down on. Mm. They don't want people being guided by their own internal influences. They want people being influenced by them. Mm. But they want the control of being able to pull people's strings and, and make them do the things they want to do. And there are so many pieces of this story that are about trying to be something you're not or trying not to be something you are. Mm. And it's, it's in... Uh, Yoffa's gold armor and marble staircases, and it's in Tony's dried fish. It's well, everywhere. And, and even in your uh, the way um, Yoffa deals with humanity, the fact that he's playing Miss Coulter and Lord Azrael against each other in his dealings, because he is supposed to be keeping Lord Azrael away from all of his work, but has provided Lord Azrael all the tools he needed to complete his work to keep Lord Azrael happy. Mm. But is lying to Miss Coulter about all that. Because he doesn't understand. There is so much that he is trying to pretend and doesn't get. This is a media conspiracy. Uh, well, I was about to say, which makes him very human, but no. Uh, also, the, uh, um, the the palace itself should be absolutely festooned with seagull shit. And uh, Lyra should be, like, reeling back because it smells vomit-inducingly revolting to indicate that even though it looks giant and grandiose, he has let it go to hell. Effectively, he is not taking care of his people in the way he should. Uh, Effectively, they have some skeletons around the place. But as you say, Megan, it doesn't look like the bears are living any different from a way they would have done. Right, you can't... They never did anything to establish there was anything unusual about... Him being king, and they decomplicate the, uh, the the situation with um, Yorick as well. In the film, it's like, oh, he his father, the king, was killed, poisoned by Yorick who then fought Yorick and banished him. Whereas in the book, it's more complicated than that, and uh, Yorick fought another bear, who I presume may have actually been the reigning king, and uh, um, who was. So you fought over a female. Oh, yeah, they fought like over me. a female, and he killed another bear, which was against... Mm. And he'd been uh, uh, addled and by uh, uh, drugs that Yorick uh, Ragnarsson had slipped him, so yes. that Yorick misinterpreted his movements, at, because bears are not allowed to kill one another. That was the giant taboo for them, in the same way that we aren't allowed to touch each other's demons. Yeah, and the poison was provided by Mrs. Coulter as a way of oh, your, uh, your... Yeah, it was supposed to... Yoffa was supposed to have got it from his first meeting with Miss Coulter, who was trying to get an ally in the bears. So gotcha. by basically forcing him... Basically getting him onto the throne, she knew she had a puppet because she knew she couldn't control York. So he's an enormous pawn who thinks he's being a player. And uh, so he's basically E.B. Farnham in Deadwood, then, which is ironic since he's played by Al Swearingen. Um... <laughs> But, uh, oh God, folks, if you haven't seen Deadwood yet, watch See it. Even Deadwood. if you're 13 years old, watch Deadwood. It's great. Um, okay. We probably should <laughs> at some point. Oh, it's fantastic. Uh, listen to our show on it as well. It's, it's, it's really excellent. Okay, um, so... It'll bring New Century to life. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Bolvanger. Um, did, did we do that? Or would, like, do, oh, hang on, I was going to do Bolvanger first and then Svalbard. I was going to handle it in the way that the book does it, but shall, let's, since we're on Scout Svalbard already... already yeah, I think they screwed it up already. Yeah, they screwed it up <laughs> terribly. They did screw this it up. Was the oh, worst. here's another thing that they screwed up. It's Joffre Ragnarsson, folks. And if you've only seen the movie, you'd be going, who's Joffre Ragnarsson? 
He's the guy that they call Ragnar Sturluson so as not to confuse things. So you're huh. Yorick Bernison and Joffre Ragnarsson in the book. Joffre Ragnarsson becomes Ragnar Sturluson so he doesn't get confused with Yorick Bernison. You've got three interchangeable Norse-sounding names. Adding one to the existing two does not decomplicate things. It, <laughs> it complicates things further. I hate when they name change because they're worried people are so stupid they won't get it. They changed uh, Osha. Oh, is it Asher to... Y- oh, fuck. Yeah, Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. Um, they changed Asher to Yara because they didn't want her getting confused with Osha. Yeah. There's already 480 characters in that book. If you can't tell one... And seven of them are called Bran. If you can't tell the difference between <laughs> Theon Greyjoy's weird sister and um, that girl the who wildling. hangs around with... The, the wildling girl who hangs around with Brandon Stark, then you're already lost. Name changes don't help anyone. No, no. Anyone at all. your biggest fans. Yeah, they just confuse the people who have been fans of it for... Yeah. So, but, so, are, so, are we following the book? Wait, wait, the wait, wait, wait. Oh, I'm sorry. So wait, were we were we done with the bears? Because there was the one less. Can we be done with the bears? Um, oh, just the bear fight. The yeah. the fight between when he knocks his, when I at the time, and him knocking his jaw off was freaking awesome. Yeah, that was really. I'm great so glad they did that, the rather than just having him like whap him in the face. Like, that was uncompromising, yeah. and they do it in such a sly way that, like, if you're an adult, you work out exactly what's happened and what's just flown at you. If you're a kid, you're like, what just happened? And then he's dead, and you're like, oh, that was it. Yeah, the difference between Eorik Bernison and Joffre Ragnarsson is good bear and bad bear. Ultimately, under these circumstances, who cares about name? You know, mm. we know this bear's bad and this bear's good. Well, you, we, we were watching the um, the extras and there was a, a scene where they were basically acting out the bear fight using little cardboard drawings on oh. little stands. And Yorick's had an I on the back and um, Ragnar, as he is now, had an R on the back. And Alex was like, please tell me they didn't change it just so they didn't have to have two counters with I on them. <laughs> <laughs> well, under those circumstances, just have one with B on it yeah, and one with R on it. It's not hard. <laughs> oh, one with G, yeah. Yeah, right. Good bear on one and bad bear on the other, there and you're go. and you're covered. It's re- uh, like the whole like he's uh, Star Wars is one of his major in- inspirations. This film's been boiled down to the point where a kid who'd just seen Star Wars could also see this, and everything would be very clear to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what? Obi Wan is Obi Wan Kenobi, and also Ben Kenobi, and nobody's confused. <laughs> Wait, really? Uh, I didn't know that. <laughs> Obi Wan Kenobi. Maybe he means old Obi Wan Kenobi. <laughs> Uh, sorry, you were saying with the, the tearing the jaw off. I, I interrupted you. I'm so sorry. No, just that it was really freaking cool at the time. Like mm. that was part of the movie that I that I remember enjoying and still enjoyed this time, even though it it did not look as good. It has not aged particularly well, but it was it was still a nice. Listen, Megan, the bears are just as good as Gollum. Chris White's told me so. But like even even the whole like fight, just the the ceremony that's supposed to be behind the fight in the books. The fact that you know bears are not supposed to fight to the death, but in this circumstance, with everything Lyra has managed to lie and manipulate, mm-hmm. the fact that there's there's going to be this fight and there's this giant ceremony around it, 
and the importance of that and the fact that like the difference between them the fact that York's supposed to be just run for 48 hours he's exhausted or, you know, 24 hours he's exhausted he hasn't eaten his armor's supposed to be a mess compared to it like you're missing all of that just so you get this well and it's also very glossed over that just the fact that she could lie to yeah. him gave Yorick exactly what he needed to, to be able to win the fight. It's it's all completely glossed over, and I hate it so much, except for the bear getting his jaw knocked off. <laughs> Everything all... else is just shit. But also, the whole the lying to Yoffa Arachnison thing is a huge set piece of the book. It's all of Lyra's uh, everything that she's learned. Up, this is the end level this boss. This is her boss fight, yeah. Uh, yes. uh, basically, um, Lyra, sure, sat up and wiped her mouth and took notice of this. She was like, right, okay. Because I'd really sold the tension of it. And I was striding around the room being Yoffa Rackneson and like leaning in very close and roaring at her when he was uh, speaking to her. But really just showing when he was puzzled and showing when he was starting to bend to. Lyra's will and Lyra Shaw was intoxicated mm-hmm. by the power that Lyra Balakwa had over him and she was really into this bit and she was like when we started watching the movie promise me that this bit's in the film and I said it is it is sort of it's sort of it's there a, a little bit the elements are there the execution is mm. not particularly it, well it's not done as a seduction in the same way basically um they wanted to keep Lyra obviously a little girl, but the way she she works in 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 the book, it's there's nothing sexual about it, but she, she's very kind of appealing to everything he likes, and she's weaving around, and she's basically using everything that she's learned from Coulter in how to be glamorous and charming and flattering, and mm-hmm. that this this part of her mother is in her. And, and we already know that all of that has worked on um, Bingo. Your fir- that has so much more impact that way. And But just the selling over and over again that you cannot trick a bear adds to the tension. Even though you know Lyra's not going to get her head ripped off in the book. He, he probably isn't. Um, like He might simply thunder at her and fling her back into the dungeon if she fails. But, um, but this is her true test and she succeeds with flying colours. And so the point where... She she runs to Yorick and, and cries at him that, you know, ultimately he's run himself ragged and now he's going to die because he's exhausted in this fight. And, he's, you know, then he names her Lyra Silvertongue. And it's a huge moment because basically he is approving of her abilities as, you know, a, a, a manipulator and, and a liar in a positive way. And it's the name she takes for herself throughout the rest of Bingo. the series. Yeah. It's it's how she it's how she identifies herself. There's a reason our friend Liz calls herself Lyra Silvertongue on Twitter and has done for a long, long time. And on top of that, it's not just yeah, the name, it's also like once the fight's over, the level of respect the other bears show her too is you know because of everything he's done he's basically made her in some respects an honorary bear because the other bears treat lyra with such respect because of the way york treats her okay so in the film we then exhort stage left pursued by a bear to um bolvanga uh where conveniently should have happened first yeah I mean, it, it doesn't make any difference. It's rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. If this in, in, blue deck chair is on the left or the right, it doesn't matter. It doesn't make any difference to improve the movie. Yeah. But it does make a difference to undermine the narrative flow of the story. Yeah. Exactly. 
Um, so, so yeah, she's in Bolvanger and all that. But they pretty much did Bolvanger exactly right, as far as I could recall it. Oh, one of the uh, design choices they made, um, which I loved, and it's so subtle I hadn't noticed until they mentioned it, um, at Jordan... There are lots of circles everywhere and warm light and, and, and there's a lot of circles indicating mm-hmm. that this is a round, pure place that's been unsullied and that's Lyra's home. When she starts to travel out, you'll see more ovals and those are the circles being squashed and controlled and malformed and misshaped and put into what appears to be order, but they're not what they should be. You couldn't make a car with oval wheels. And uh, the actual contraption she gets put in to uh, have the, uh, the, the severing uh, occur is this giant oval. So when she destroys that, it's a wonderful sort of symbolic, you know, I'm going to... That, that, that doesn't even happen in the uh, book, and I wish it had, because it's a really great moment. She destroys the machine. There are occasional mm-hmm. flashes in here, which I'm, uh, several of them Pullman's confirmed that I would have done it that way. But several other ones, you know, definitely would work. Kind of like the rest of this movie, they rushed through this section so quick without touching on so much of the important elements. <laughs> like, in in the film... She just shows up. They're like, oh, how'd you get out here? We're in the middle of nowhere. Oh, okay, I'll just believe whatever story you tell me. Whereas in the book, she's taken there. She was captured by... by Yes, and taken there, so she had a reason to be there, whereas... And paid for as well. They they, they mm -hmm. paid these kidnappers. Yes, whereas in the book, they're like, oh, you just kind of wandered in here. Nothing odd about that. (laughs) <laughs> well, I guess we'll just uh, we'll just put you in here with the rest of the kids, and she's there for what seems like less than twenty four hours. She's yeah. there. For, the movie cuts it down to like ten minutes. Yeah, it's a very and, short amount of time, and you don't get any of the sense of of trepidation and, and urgency, building yeah. on ease yeah. and how. <clears throat> Um, how threatening the whole place is. I mean, all right, you, you know from pretty much the minute she walks in, all is not well here in the state of Denmark. Something is... Bad stuff's going down. But to do but that, you'd the, have to upset the kids. But this is the thing, You'd though. literally have to have the child actors saying things which are unsettling, which would upset the kids. Yes. Upset the parents. I know. I'm well aware of why they I don't do it. i got kids here. But it's, <laughs> it's part of that whole scene is the, the fact that the children are deeply unnerved by what's going on. They know something that is not right is happening. And in this, it's just like, they're kids, they don't really think, do they? They're just there and think. Kids just adorable little morons. So that you don't really need to worry about too much. You know, all of that stuff about kids hear everything. Everything you say, they will absorb. They will pick up. You might not know it until ten years down the line, but they do. And there's none of that. They're just, they are background material, they are ignored, and that's that completely wrecks half the point of this damn story. Mm -hmm. Which is adults underestimating children. Mm. Yes, and they, the kids aren't even, they don't even seem all that terrible. They're like, oh, yeah, they do an experiment and then you don't come back. That's it. That that was yeah. basically the extent of the, what the lack of buildup for what the se- to the sever. It just seems yeah. very odd. Do they do there it? needs to be Temple of Doom level stuff of welcome right. to the refuge of the damned. Like Kali, ma. Nice sleep, yeah. like sleep of Kali. Do they, do they 
Have any of the the hint of the adults that have been severed, the the nurses that have got the little. They adults? never say that that's what's happened to them, but that's what's happened in the book, folks. Those adult nurses walking around with a nurse ratchet expression. They've had their demons severed, and so they've gone into a kind of a zombie-like trance. Mm. They are ex- extremely pliable as the magisterium wants. Yeah, they've effectively been spiritually lobotomized. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they even mention that in the book later when Lord Azriel's talking to her about it as kind of in a, a He's compared modified to castration. castration. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of a modified for, castration. For me, this is even worse. Control. This feels more like the cutting of the rose, which is, I'm not even mm-hmm. going to go into if you Google that if you want to, folks, but that's. No, don't, no, I actually, recommend don't do it. that. Don't, don't do it. that. Um, but, and the fact that, again, it was supposed to be, like, Mrs. Coulter was supposed to have learned about this operation in Africa, and, like, that it had been happening down there, and that's how, you know, they had slaves down there, because they were... And that's how they created zombies, and... Racist. Yes. <laughs> but, but, know, but the idea that it's all about control, that does tie very much in with, with that, I have yeah, to say. Yeah. It does, and I... I was not a big fan of how they did the machine. I mean, I, the the oval I hadn't noticed that, but that is a a nice touch. Well, if it's so subtle, but you don't notice, machine, and you're too busy raging about the whole movie, then it didn't do its job. That's pretty much what it is. Yeah, the, but the actual machine itself looked so rickety and ridiculous. <laughs> I was just like, that's that's a chain link fence. They just cut out a chain link fence from some elementary schoolyard and slapped it in there, and it's it. It looked ridiculous, and it was supposed to be more like a like a like a it was guillotine. A guillotine. It was a guillotine, and it it was just this weird like electrical, but it was supposed to be this very fine metal be. sharpened to the point of well, they wouldn't want a to up- they wouldn't want to upset the parents and the children by having because this is what it feels like actually. It's not so much they don't want to upset children; they don't want to upset overly upset mums. You know, they don't want to. Who upset may or like, may not oh, already be blades near children? No, thank you. But, the people who are already somewhat upset at this movie because oh, it might—they're going to kill God later. But, so they might question their religious faith. Um, oh no! But like, even to but change since your, it's like, already going to piss them off because it's going to be bait for the books. It doesn't matter what you put in there. The kids yeah. could have been severed by throwing jelly beans at them. It, it, it doesn't like. <laughs> You're in for like a penny, in for a pound. Yeah, they really needed to just go for it, and that. Yeah, it's like you're never you're never going to get that percentage of the audience that absolutely that is like, oh God, no, this has to do, you know, this is oh, anti-religion, anti-God, anti-this. So why censor that element the way they did? You're never going to get that percentage, so why even bother trying to cater to pretending like you're going to get it? You know who I really want to appeal to? All those people who hate everything I am and everything I stand for. (laughs) Good luck with that. (laughs) Um, Back to the the cutting and the the guillotine, like not having Mrs. Coulter there and Lyra spying on her and her hearing about the fact that she was watching the first, first cuts, that she was, you know, like... She was there. She was very she, involved. She, the, I, I hate to say glee, but like the fact that she was so involved in this and it was her pet project, the fact that the other researchers were even kind of like turned off by that. Like they were like, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, she's way too into this. This and is then, isn't that they, a bit, eh? No, it's a lot. <laughs> and then, you know, 
having Miss Coulter show up and like rescue Lyra despite hearing all these things, if they were going with this idea that she would then reveal that she was her mother, like you talked about earlier, that would have been more impactful then. It's like, I saved you from this because you're my daughter and I don't want you, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. She Instead, distracts her as well, by the way. When, when uh, Lyra says, oh, if it's so, if it's so good, I was like, why did you stop me from having it? And she goes, uh, oh, uh, I'm your mum. Yeah, it's like, is that bowling you over? And guess who your dad is? Lord Asriel. Right, okay, so I guess we don't have to resolve this one. Moving on. Yeah. <laughs> it's just occurred to me, actually, and I know this the, the scene where um, uh, Mrs. Coulter slaps the monkey isn't in the book. I do like that no. scene. Mm. He, uh, Pullman went away and wrote that, and then gave because they said we need a bit of business with these two, and he wrote that, and it makes perfect sense. It does. It but does. It, it just occurred to me when you were talking about how fascinated she is by the whole intercession process um, and and how, like you say, this is her pet project. To a degree, she has severed herself from her demon by, yeah. by being cruel to it, by manipulating it with, with punishments and comfortings in rapid succession. She's cut herself off from that part of, of um, who she is. And one of the first things she says in the film, I don't think it's in the book, is I knew no one would ever understand me except my demon. So it's like you had this one person and you've alienated yeah. yourself from this you've, horrible... You've pushed it away so that you can control it. And you've warped it in the process. Mm. She's doing mm. on a small scale... Golden monkey's broken. She, yeah, and on a small scale, she's doing to the monkey what the church is trying to do to everyone else. Wow. I thought this film that didn't. I thought this book had hidden depths. I don't know. The film occasionally it's so annoying because oh they God. were on on so many levels. They were so close. You know, they had all the bits assembled, and if basically I'd been able to march in there as I am now, not back in two thousand seven, but as I am now, and said, "Right, <laughs> give me a go on the script. Give me one pass. Give me a weekend." I will rewrite this whole thing from scratch. I will burn the midnight oil. But I would get it done and I would get everyone a powerful a powerful flow to it. Yeah, but um, then you would have had to go and explain it to John Peters while he sits back with a screen. It's, I would do that. <laughs> I would do that. I no, should I, be the I, script doctor. Yeah. Instead that they keep no, getting Damon Lindelof in there. To do with this. Oh, do you want me to bugger up Prometheus for you? I'll do that and Damon Lindelof. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you want me to bugger up World War Z even more for you? I'll do that. I'm David Lindelof. <laughs> Here to ruin your drinking water. <laughs> oh, I think I may have created a new character. <laughs> you can tell who we hate the most in Hollywood, can't you? Mm. People who fuck up scripts. Um. Anywho. Um, yeah, no, the, 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 the station situation happens. One of the most powerful emotional bits in the film, where Mrs. Coulter realizes Lyra's in the machine and runs forward in slow motion and all the sound gets leached out and, and she takes her out in slow motion and then cradles her in her arms. Really powerful stuff. Pinched from the sixth sense. He probably didn't even know he was doing it, but Chris White's... That, that's that bit with... Um, it's the bit where Cole's mother pulls his, him out of the uh, the dungeon he gets. Oh, that's right, yeah, out of, the, out of the cabinet um, thing in the, and just, the attic. I mean, think about... Think about this in Shudder. M. Night Shyamalan's Golden Compass. Oh! 
no. Oh, you take that back. <laughs> and that's the end of the podcast, everybody. And that drops is... mic. Nope. It could have been so much worse. Every single Ooh. performance ruined by that man. You could, I could imagine that, um, you know, uh, Sam Elliott would come in and go, I'm fairly certain I should. No, you'll say it in a flat, dead way. <laughs> I wrote this myself. <laughs> I've got this vision now of M. Night Shyamalan carefully removing Ratter and handing Billy a small piece of dried fish. Oh, genius! <laughs> um, Ian, sorry, you were trying to say something before. Oh, before David oh. Lindelof turned up. Uh, totally something we forgot from way earlier in the book that just occurred to me. We were talking about foreshadowing and the mm-hmm. stuff of the golden monkey <clears throat> that's in the book is uh, something Megan pointed out to me when she was listening to it. When they're talking about uh, the things in the north in the forest and you have the mention of, oh, there's people without demons. And um, they also effectively mention the specters that come into the subtle knife very early in the golden compass and I don't know if either of you two had ever noticed that uh, is it where they're talking about the various monsters um, and they yes. talk about some uh, these sort of raids wandering around that uh, have their lungs being pumped by the demons and they, they can't live and they can't die and they're just the breathless ones and it's like well because in this world that physics works except for the fact that they would also freeze to death and die of starvation and thirst in minutes so it's not really going to keep them alive alive forever but okay um but it just seems like one person could see this horrific thing and then that would suddenly become a piece of mythology but yes they do talk about something where all the life just sort of gets sucked mm-hmm. out of uh, people who, who, who find mm-hmm. like a, a wisp of something in the yep. forest and yeah they're talking about they're like a little shimmer in the air yeah the spectres you can just half see yeah which is a great little seed to be laying down like that um and, yeah. and it's just little stuff like that it's like they were the they they wanted to do the sequel like that's obvious by the way they ended it why not include little hints like that as to what's coming and then but it's just it's, they can things barely include details from the existing book, let alone the sequel. <laughs> I know. They did. They actually did a real crap job of setting it up for a sequel, besides just leaving the ending hanging there mm. with Roger in his little slow voice. We're going to go home now, Lyra. Like, <laughs> it was just... No, no, it was sorry, just that wasn't awful. Oh, that was too, that, that was too that fast. That was too fast. It was far too fast. And then Ian was incredibly angry, and he hasn't said it yet, about Lee's balloon. Was not a balloon. Oh yeah, in the fucking film. hot air balloon. Is it a dirigible? No, it's not even a dirigible. That's some weird at thing Airship that they invented. Type. Like, oh god! I I like zeppelins. I like hot <laughs> air balloons, and I like blimps. That is none of those three things. Are you the Chris Eason of uh, dirigibles and hot air balloons? It's. Mm. Zeppelins are rigid airships. They have a frame. A hot air balloon <laughs> is an unframed thing that runs off hot gas. Full of flammable a helium. Is a combination of the two. What the hell is this double gas bag with a basket bullshit? Doesn't work. I may have to call upon you when it comes to air travel in the future in New Century, Ian. Is that okay? Yes, that's perfectly fine. I. It'll be a case of could this work, and you go nope. Okay. How could this work? Well, I guess. Da, 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 da. You know, if you if you want a good example, slightly off tangent, 
go look at the uh, early designs for or go look at the designs for airships and stuff out of Crimson Skies, mm-hmm. the video game, because those were actually based off of proper like zeppelins that they designed. There were zeppelins they designed after World War One that could actually dock aircraft and they would like actually tow aircraft around for scouting. Oh, nice. But this one like, is just sort of a thing that was drawn. It was like, yeah, that works. That looks it? great. It's like, it's that looks, cool. looks like it could Let's fly. Throw some blue glowy balls on it, and it'll be amazing. It's, like, it's supposed to be a hot air balloon. The audience is going to understand a hot air balloon. Why can't we just have a hot air balloon? <laughs> Give us this one thing. Give us this one thing. You said and you were gonna. <laughs> that's and then, of course, that's the end of the film when there's a whole slew of other things that happen that are so important. Right, we haven't talked about the chaotic and crappy battle yet, because you're um, just getting yeah. out of there, a bunch of Tartars turn up from nowhere, and yeah. it's only a like, shot like directly of their faces, so you can't see their ranks, and then a bunch of Egyptians and witches and bears, oh my, turn up. Friggin' Yorick T-Rexes the whole bunch of them. He, like, he sneaks up <laughs> so silently, and then just whap, like, saves Lyra's ass. Um, oh but then gosh, when the Egyptians turn up, it's it's shot from low down, so you can't see that there's only about 12 of them. And then these sort of dark-shaped people attack a bunch of other dark-shaped people on a sort of a blurry, whitish background. It's a meaningless battle. It's one of those, yeah, for job, whoa, whoa, where the hero characters are fighting and everyone around them is going, nah, 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 nah. And like sort of, you know, Serafina flies down and like she becomes visible and stabs someone with her knife and just goes, did not know who it was messing with. Wait, wait, you mean it's like the shitty battle at the end of the last Game of Thrones season? I'm just sorry. Probably. You're not sorry. I haven't seen sorry. it. Every, yeah, I know you haven't, but everyone's oh, that was an amazing fight. It's like, that's oh, not- look, Jon Snow looked, moved just to the left as an arrow came by because, you know, that's how battles work. <laughs> yes. Tell it to King yeah. Harold. Um, anyway. the, the fight was just so and, uh, and we they stopped. skipped so much about the kids practicing when there was a fire drill and yeah. so of course you're going to pull the alarm because Lyra of course knows that that's absolutely going to get everybody to leave the building and they're just going to be able to walk right out she never and then she starts to put actual on this. disasters by throwing the chair in the machine so she starts an actual <laughs> Like disaster going. She never set them up to, uh, you know. She never said you must be wearing your cold weather gear or you'll die in minutes. And yeah. then they never end up wandering through the snow, and she has to keep them moving. That's nope, out of there they're as well. Just in a fight. Just they're in just a fight. Immediately, these kids. Immediately, there's a battle. Mr. Cole, doesn't Serafina like fly down and have a conversation in the middle of the battle mm. while there's like stuff going on around them? It's like, wow, that's that's like. So yeah. how I would have that. It's now. just a mess, but it was like a, a, a pre-vised, we want a battle, we must have a bit of a fight, chucked in at the end because every fantasy film now has to have a battle, even if that battle is meaningless, even if we have nothing invested, even if we're bored and we would much rather have been slowly investing and then not have a battle. And of course, Lyra and Lee and Roger all just walk right out of it. They're like, "All right, here we go. Let's, uh, we're fine. Let's just walk out of here." Yeah. Oh yeah, they'll they'll figure this out. Don't we even worry about it. Yeah. And they just leave everyone fight. It's like, what did you yeah. just do? Yeah, it's like, and they no. have. It's like they have the oper- the, the the scenario in the book where Lee comes in with the balloon and rescues them. Why couldn't we have just had that happen? Mark Costa, like, shoots a guy dead and goes, Ha! Now I'm fine. Now my son is avenged. (laughs) She didn't say that. She just sort of goes, And it's like, well, that's about all we're going to get from Mark Costa. Thank you. Did you you enjoy that three minutes of her on screen? 
But yeah, they could have easily had Lee come in and rescue Lyra and the kid, yeah, Lyra, Roger, and York, and like, like see the battle in the background. It's like, nope, cut to balloon. And then, you know what, have the balloon take them to Lord Azrael, because, you know, they weren't following the story anyway, so why not just completely change how that happens? Exactly, well, let's just that's skip right over towards. that. Uh, even in the book, by the way, because well, Falbard comes second, um, Lyra mm-hmm. leads like this expedition up to uh, Lord Azrael, and then when she meets Lord Azrael... She then goes to the summit and she's pursued by a whole army of bears who are trying to defend her ass and a zeppelin's chasing them and then there's fire throwers. And even in the book, that's a superfluous battle that doesn't need to happen. The focus should be just Lyra, just Yorick, just get up to the top of the mountain, leave the rest of the bears behind to have the battle. Um, Basically, since Lord of the Rings, it's been like open season on fantasy battles and we've now seen so goddamn many. We never need to see another one, frankly. And there's always going to be battles, but you might want to consider just not having one. You know, like they even stuck battles which didn't even need to happen, small scale ones, into Desolation of Smaug. You don't need them. The third film's half battle and it's not good battle. Yeah, I was just thinking, I was like, what, the entire end, uh, you know, the entire, like, three quarters of Battle of Five Armies is just really kind of generic and boring and not particularly interesting? There's only so many times you can see an orc or a tartar or a goblin or a, a Anubis warrior getting killed by a dwarf or an elf or a man or a bear or an eagle, but the witches turn up and say, like the fucking eagles! The witches are here. The eagles are here. It's oh. Here Why couldn't they have just flown off the on the back of a witch? Oh. Mm-hmm. You mean you could have flown me to Lord Azrael at any time? <laughs> Not at any time. Only when, Only it, when was it was funny. funny. <laughs> oh, God damn it. Okay. So, okay. Right. Okay. Can I just do a thing about the end of this movie? Because they didn't do a thing. Wait, you mean actually end the movie? Yeah. This book is, I said this before, uh, mutilated in the way that one would be horrified at seeing a child having their arm severed or, you know... Or have some acid dumped on them. Yeah, okay. (laughs) But a better comparison would actually be that uh, New Line wanted a new mattress. They wanted to pay for the best mattress. I have the best mattresses. So they paid for a king-size, really well-made memory foam and spring, just like combination, and like all the best stuff, mattress. It looks and feels great. And then they got it brought to their house, and they had this rickety old double bed. Now, a king-size mattress and a double bed don't go together. So they tried to squeeze it in, and it's like, it's not going to go. It's sort of bunching up and doubling over. And New Line went, it's all right. So I, I got a saw. And then they sawed off nearly a foot of the mattress. It's not a huge amount but it's a big significant part and then there's bang and springs firing out all over the place and when you lie on it the mattress is sort of sinking in the wrong places and it feels horrible to sleep on and the bed's all rickety and new lines say oh it's okay we'll order in the future a really good king size bed frame it doesn't matter you've already buggered the mattress no one wants to sleep on this thing that's what cutting the end of this story is. When you remove the end of a story that has a beginning, middle, and end, it's a hero's journey. You malform and mistreat the structure of it. Lyra had something very important to do. Can I just explain to folks roughly what happens at the end of this book? 
why, why don't you actually just give us a quick synopsis of the whole thing? Because we know the movie, you didn't actually get any of it right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, basically, uh, Lyra, the, the end of the movie, as you remember, sort of, it's the play, like, you remember the bit where she's riding across the snow and Eurek Berniston, and it's playing the E.T. music, and it goes, because Alexander Desplat has a boner for John Williams, and I don't blame him, who wouldn't? And he's obviously riffing on John Williams here. At the end, he's riffing on Jurassic Park. It even has that type thing. Dylan fly away in the helicopter in the day. Is no, no, that's not the end at all, folks. Lyra may approach uh, Lord Asriel with a kind of, we've done it, we've pushed through, but uh, then he sits her, uh, first off he's horrified to see her until she, he sees Roger. He has a way of asking for things and having the universe deliver it. Maybe he's, you know, really into self-help. And um, he asked the universe to deliver him a child. And the universe delivered him Lyra, but also delivered him Roger. Lyra's under the impression she's supposed to bring him the golden campus, the alethiometer. And uh, he gives, uh, once he's calmed down, he gives her a long discussion about why the uh, ablation board are severing children. And this is where the book really sort of unpacks the Bible and goes, look, this is original sin, this is dust, this is why they're trying to stop doing it. I can understand why they would not want to write that word for word. There are elegant ways of getting it conveyed in a different fashion, but ultimately it's like, well, let's keep all the stuff of that nature until the next movie. If this one does really well, we can go in with more confidence. That means you're not starting with confidence. That means you don't have the intention of delivering a great story. After uh, Lyra is told about this and is furious with uh, Lord Asriel for not really appreciating the lengths she's gone to and the pains she's gone through and everything that's happened, um, she goes to sleep, she wakes up, Roger's gone, Asriel's gone, he's headed up the mountain. Uh, his manservant, Thorold, is very distressed and uh, says that Lord Asriel had a fire and a madness in his eyes. And um, Lyra pursues on Yorick, there's bear stuff, but let's not talk about that because it's actually not important, the whole fire thrower and the bringing down of a zeppelin. She gets to the top of the mountain, then she has to cross the ice bridge. They moved that earlier into the uh, story, and she had to master her fear. Um, but Yorick can't go with her, so she goes up on her own, tries to save Roger and bring him back. What Lord Asriel's done is he's got a fellow, a friend witch of his to bring one end of a wire uh, attached to some philosophical apparatus he has on his sled all the way up into the aurora you know the northern lights the thing they never mention in the film at all the thing the book is called northern lights this book this adventure is about a man who wants to get to other worlds and the place where the layer is thinnest between these other worlds is at the northern lights but to do that, he needs a vast burst of energy. And to, that apparently occurs when a, uh, a child is severed. And he intends to sever Roger. Lyra, in attempting to rescue Roger, inadvertently causes a snowdrift. Stelmaria, the snow leopard, has hold of Roger's demon. Lyra topples down hundreds of feet survives but because she was holding Roger at the time he is severed the burst occurs there is an enormous explosion into the aurora and Chittagatse a city in another world becomes tangible and there becomes a bridge to the stars which means that Lord Azriel now out of his god with big big plans for confronting the almighty and undoing death we'll talk about the madness of Lord Azriel next time <laughs> 
he succeeded. Then Mrs. Coulter turns up. They kiss, and he says, come with me. And she says, no, I, I can't. My place is here with the Magisterium. And he goes, right, bye then. And walks off into the Aurora. Um, then I think it, it never really says what happens to Mrs. Coulter, but she basically leaves, doesn't notice uh, Lyra there on the mountainside, cradling Roger's dead body, the boy she came all this way to save. And her heart's broken, and she feels personally responsible. She was the one who brought about the great betrayal. She had the best of intentions, but ultimately, whatever she did, uh, Roger ended up dead. And she's got nothing. She's got nothing left to go back to, um, and she's got nothing left to go forward to. She's lost, and she decides to take responsibility for Lord Asriel, her father, and she decides to press on and to keep moving and to go into other worlds and to try to stop what she now feels responsible for facilitating. And it is this immense amount of bravery and honour for a child to take on. And that was the point when I decided my firstborn was, if it was a girl, was going to be Lyra. And if if I ever had a girl, it would be her. The... um, just that moment of okay and then she walks up into the stars with pantalimon and that they the point of the end is that they're not alone she may have nothing left um but she's got pan and it's such a wonderful bittersweet upsetting but exhilarating sad thrilling ending to the story that even if all of this crap had happened in this movie so far if you'd done that with some level of confidence it would be a considerably better movie if it had been a really moving ending people would have walked out people walked out of Terminator 3 saying oh it's quite a good movie because the ending was moving you move people people forgive all kinds of shit we've already established that Terminator 3 is a shower of effluent but people liked the ending. Because they gutlessly cut this part off, ostensibly because they said, oh, we'll save that for the sequel. So we're going to start Subtle Knife with, as you said, Ian, the murder of a child. Like, it's an already incredibly dense book. It's it's longer than uh, uh, Northern Lights, with more to explain. And you're, you're going to add extra onto it. It's the opposite of Fellowship of the Ring. Fellowship of the Ring took on board the beginning of Two Towers because it makes much more sense dramatically to end on the death of Boromir. This did the opposite. It removed. It it cut away the drama. It cut away the meaning. It cut away the pathos. It cut away the heartache, and everything that it means to be a human and push hard against adversity. They cut that away in a gutless, pathetic move to ensure a box office success, but a safe box office success. Not a box office success based on people being impressed with your movie, just based on people not being offended by your movie or upset by your movie without understanding what motivates people, what people respond to. This disgusts me. I am appalled with this decision. And I will never not be. They shot the footage. If you watch carefully during the uh, end, the, the second and, and uh, sorry, second and third trailers, there's bits of Lyra screaming at Mrs. Coulter, "I'm not yours. I'll never be yours." Come, Lyra. I'm not yours. 
shots of the aurora exploding outwards, that was filmed. And Chris Weitz has feebly said, Oh, I wish I could do an extended version. It would have an extra 30 minutes of footage in it, but it probably wouldn't have the ending in it. What was in that extra 30 minutes? This was where you stand your ground and say, No, this story deserves to have a full shape. You are, that you're taking a circle, you're hacking off one corner of it, and you're making this weird, not quite circle for money. Sorry for shouting, folks, and sorry for going on and on, but we have hit upon the thing that makes me, the thing that made me angriest and still does to this day about cinema. Gutless, bottom line obsessed executives destroying my favorite book. Okay, go. That wasn't a be quiet, by the way. That was a, they're taking the circle and squeezing it into an oval. Oh, yeah. No, no, it's <laughs> hacking off the edge. It's not even squeezing, it's hacking. It's going, we've got the template. It's family fun movie. Family fun movies do not end with a dead child. The end. And because they hired someone who had no ability to actually stand up for, for artistic integrity, this was allowed to push through. Well, and it, it absolutely took all of the emotional impact of... And it's really, that is the turning point for every part of Lyra's story. She's going to the North to rescue Roger. That's her purpose in going. That's what she feels like she must do. And then she fails completely. And it is absolutely, as she takes it, her fault. It's her fault that this happens. And all she wants to do throughout the rest of the story is either avenge him or apologize to him. Throughout the rest of the series, that is her driving force and they completely neutered it it's disgusting it completely just cuts her character off and takes away everything about who she is and what drives her and what motivates her and we hate it too it's just absolutely the worst part of this film is that they just stopped it and I remember walking out of the theater going well that well, I, I remember just leaving so confused. I had absolutely expected them to, to take it through to the end. And I had actually, I, I have this tendency of like pre-crying in things where I know something terrible is going to happen. And, and Ian hates it because he knows if there's a movie that I have seen, he hasn't. If I start crying, he's like, oh, somebody's going to die. And I, I was waiting. I was waiting for that moment. And it never came. And it was so unsatisfying and that sounds horrible because this is a child dying and it's this is the one thing that as a kid did not impact me the way it did as an adult as an adult when roger dies it is one of the most horrible parts of this book for me and god i fell off a, a treadmill listening to it because i made the mistake of listening to the audiobook at the gym and it was it was absolutely awful and, it's the payoff. The, it's a very personal loss to show the extent of what happens when these children are abused by an uncaring system, by these power mongers, the, the fallout. Tony Markarios at the bottom of the, uh, the, the pile. No one cares about him, but Lyra cares about him. And my God, does Lyra care about Roger? He's just a... He's just a child. He won't be missed. He's, you know, but it's it's what motivated her to go out there in the first place. This is about friendship, for God's sake. And it end, the the way it ends is 
you know, I need to find out what dust is. She's saying this to Roger. He's like, oh, I, I want more exposition dumps. I can't wait to get to our, as Lord Asriel so he can tell me more about the mechanics of this world. Also, there's a really important part about Roger that if you're going on to make the subtle knife is absolutely key. Her her bond with Roger is part of why she bonds with Will. Mm. Mm-hmm. Because she's it, trying to replace that. She's trying to heal that wound. And her loss of Roger absolutely affects every interaction she has with Will and how she either does or does not come to trust him eventually and the things that she she tells him and the th- the way that she treats him is absolutely affected by by the loss of Roger. Mm-hmm. The, uh, going back to the, the fact that they were looking at the bottom line, um, the new line, they, they got an adequate opening for the film, but then they said, well, let's see how well it does overseas. And it did well overseas. It sold well in Japan. But New Line had already sold, before the film came out, the rights for foreign distribution to other markets, to other studios. So they weren't going to see a penny of the worldwide sales. So why the hell hang it on that? If you knew that the only way you could make money in this, it it was in America, and so your best way to do this is to rip its teeth out and and, and deliver a, 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 a blancmange of a film rather than um, a Jacobean banquet, which is what it's supposed to be. <laughs> They're setting themselves up to fail. There is no shrewd reasoning behind any of this. No, it's just so there's greedy. Nothing, there's nothing this... shrewd about it. The whole reason that New Line, in my opinion, this is from, from observation, from, from comments that people have made, and from the pattern of, of what they did and how they put together the extras and all that... What they were trying to do was replicate Lord of the Rings and the success that they'd had with that because their shareholders and the people who were looking at their stock had got used to the idea that they have these massive boosts and massive kicks and Once they couldn't year, yeah. risk, or at least the way they saw it, they couldn't risk a situation where they alienated a sizable part of the market. The problem was they didn't know how they got the Lord of the Rings market they did. That was a fluke. That was a... a you, you, I tell you they what you did. accidentally hired incredibly talented Absolutely. people. I tell you what you did, New Line, to get that particular <laughs> miracle out of Lord of the Rings. Nothing. <laughs> you did nothing. It was the people who put those films together. It wasn't anything you did. Stop trying to work out what magic button you pressed. It was none. To compound that, when put back together, the now different Weta couldn't do it a second time. The chemistry didn't work. So, an odd bit I just read. Um, <laughs> sorry, I'm going to cut in for a split second there on this. No, no, go for it. That there was supposed to have been a test version where Roger was actually cut, and that uh, the, the test audience thought Lyra was going to heaven and supposed to another world, and that's one of the reasons they changed it. Oh, because people are stupid. Because test audiences are stupid. So basically, even though, like, look, look at Pan. She's broken through to another world, a city in the sky. Just like, like, start as you mean to go on, like, have everyone explain everything. But at least you get that. 
But basically, what actually happens, it's not just that Asriel opens up a portal in the sky. He actually breaks the dimension that is the shield barrier between worlds. When he does that, all the other worlds start to bleed into each other through already existing portals. And he creates a real mess as a result. He, he hasn't carefully cut a very controlled portal. No. He's ripped He's fracked it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Set up an explosion and basically just torn. You know, it's a it's a violent penetrative act on his part. Absolutely. Well, we'll send you. There's a there's like a short YouTube video that has some of the scenes and then some of it's done as like a storyboard. Oh, I've seen it. I've seen. You have it. okay. Megan. Okay. <laughs> but believe me, this is something that I've been uh, pacing the floor for. What was it 2016 now? Um, nine years. Um, just basically. Furious with the outcome of, and uh, you know, it became fairly apparent early on after the film came out. They're not doing a subtle knife. We held on for a no. while, but uh, I, I was holding no. on basically not not so much for a subtle knife, but like a an extended edition where they're like, "Oh, sod it, we're not going to make any more money for. Well, we can make some more money from this, just like you know, for the fans. We'll release the unedited version where we've actually got the ending with a exclusive new ending." Um, but they have to date not yet done that. I'm, I mean, there is a shade of possibility that if the BBC one does phenomenally well, and we're talking Game of Thrones level, like Doctor Who level, um, phenomenally well in, in America as well as uh, England, that they'll go, oh, we had a film with like a special ending just sitting here and we called back Chris White's to to put this together the editor is is you know uh, Anvi Coates I believe uh, you know someone who's worked on like Lawrence of Arabia was it you can't even really blame the editing on this no you can't she didn't have anything no, to work with I was with. gonna say an editor is is really they shape the film but they can only work with what they've got if they haven't got the material to start with they are limited and if they're given a deadline of this has got to be in under two hours because we've got to pack in eight showings a day Mm. rather than six showings a day in fact, that my, my theory is one of the reasons they decided not to make the sequel in the end was because nobody on this team could figure out what the word subtle meant. <laughs> in the original book, Mrs. Coulter is there to personally escort Tony Markarios to the Gobbler's base, right? She's the one who snatches him. She's the one who gobbles him, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yes. In this, it's Billy Costa and Roger. So she'd have known that there was a boy called Roger being brought into uh, the, the, this particular uh, shipment. And uh, as soon as Lyra's like, uh, I'm looking for a friend called Roger, uh, he might have been gobbled, she would immediately, being super smart, go, uh, yep, that was me. And then immediately get on the dog and bone or whatever it is to the other gobblers and just go, Release Roger! Because, like, if you're going to involve Lyra in this, you can't take the chance that Roger's going to be involved in the station. Yeah, that that would have been the smart thing to do. Mm. But then you don't oh. have a movie. And Very so, true. Sod it. They uh, they had them like they had them gobbled in a completely different way. So who cares? But you also can't say that she would know the name of every child that was picked up. Like she might. Well, that's the thing. She was supposed to because she was supposed to ask their name and get the letters from them in the book. Bingo. Right. But, but is mean, she going to remember every single... I mean, you'd think if she said, my, my friend's been... He's missing. We can't find him. I'd like to see him. His name him. is Roger. 
You think, think that would like, at least ring a bell somewhere? Like last night, he got snatched. Yeah, know? let's think. It wasn't like it was a week ago. It was. Oh, but uh, well, actually, in, in, the, in, the but book, in the in the book, it's like, what's your name? Uh, Tony Markarios. Whereas in this, it's like, ah, throttling the poor kid. And who well, are actually, you? in the, I had my monkey crush your your demon's throat. I remember. <laughs> well, in the book, she actually. She forgets that Roger got taken because she's so swept up in Mrs. Coulter. Yeah. She she actually forgot that and she, she feels needed terrible to, about herself. Yeah, she does, yeah. and she felt so bad about it because she got swept up in the grandeur of Mrs. Coulter that she doesn't realize that she forgot to say goodbye to him and mm. that he was missing until after she'd already left for uh, London. for London, London yeah. and which again goes back to part of her motivation. Why she's so determined to save Roger is she screwed up. She like, doesn't want to screw up again. Yeah, this is her best friend, and she forgot about her because she got swept up in this life of elegance and mystery with this woman who just played her like a fiddle, effectively, because you know she knew exactly what button, buttons to press with Lyra to get her enamored. And I've mentioned this before, but the uh, the soundtrack uh, for this film by Alexander Desplat, the the score is quite lovely it's a bit too jaunty at times for, for such a story uh, i love the sort of the boom 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 like he uses different metals and there's like little like um gong like reverbs throughout to just sort of really give a feel of like this sort of precious shining gold but sort of this burnished mystery throughout and then which is great i i, I found a really great little mini summation on uh, on Wikipedia uh, from the Atlantic Monthly which basically sums up exactly what happened with the Golden Compass it's one, it's one sentence <clears throat> with 180 million dollars at stake New Line chose to kidnap the book's body but leave behind its soul <sighs> nailed it so nailed it yeah, um, I think that's pretty much all we can say on this first one. Anything we have left to say, we can uh, mention uh, next time. Um, and uh, personally, of the three, Subtle Knife is my favourite of the books. I think it's the tightest, the most pacey, and the most kind of, oh, oh, because of the presence of a child from our Earth gives us a great sense of comparison with Lyra. So... Um, that I mean, mm-hmm. that was one of the major inspiration points again for me with uh, New Century. So New Century would not be the book series it is, and the audio series it is without these books. Absolutely, most definitely. Okay, thank you guys so so much for coming on. It has been absolute pleasure. Thank you for having us yep. and letting us angrily rant about this movie with you. <laughs> Um, actually, I would say it's been an absolute pleasure. It's been a pleasure having you guys here. It's been painful <laughs> talking about the way this movie was adapted. It's been genuinely painful. I still don't hate Chris Weitz, but I disapprove of him thoroughly, and I have nothing but disdain for New Line of that era. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you on that statement. I, I think as a capstone of this, Ian and I are going to go break our DVD into as many pieces as possible and throw it into garbage. We're keeping our <laughs> Blu-ray because I would posit, and this is actually quite a good capper, is it better to have a bad adaptation or no adaptation at all ever? No adaptation at all ever. Think about it. No. Before you I answer, have thought about it. Think. I have absolutely thought about think it. Think I would harder. never... I am thinking so hard right now, Alex, and... Think harder than that. 
No, I'm okay, thinking right. of I would, thinking about I other would... films as well, and I would rather that people... The Last Airbender? I mean, there's... The Last Airbender. Ender's Game. Good God, it was horrendous. There are so many things that have culturally been destroyed <laughs> because of these adaptations, and people will have a certain idea about what these are supposed to be based instead of having... Movies. Based off horrible, terrible films that destroy the essence of what these things are supposed to be instead of just not experience them, experiencing them or experiencing them through the love of someone else who is also passionate about these things. I would much rather have you talk to me and tell me about your love of the Northern Lights for an hour and a half than sit down and watch this shitty film. <laughs> I would rather it was never a film and just have this wonderful, beautiful, perfect Oxford in my brain and have it be exactly as it needs to be rather than have a film adaptation. Can you drop the mic? Because I think yes. that's the best way for us to end. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bless you. Um, I... <laughs> I'm not going to no. say I disagree. Uh, in those ones that you cited, you're damn right, and World War Z makes me ill. I, I have an Ender's Game tattoo. Oh. And, but not from the movie, from the book. You mean the one where it's, they actually follow the correct color scheme? Yeah. The fucking <laughs> army in the goddamn book? Oh my god, fuck this movie so hard. Just <laughs> Burn it to the fucking ground, and while you're at it, you can just take Orson Scott Card right fucking with you, that money-grubbing asshole. I hate him, <laughs> and I would happily, happily destroy every book that he has written after, like, 2004. <laughs> uh. And probably earlier, for that matter. It's just, he's turned into a gen... We'll save that for something else. Okay. We will save that for another time. Okay. <laughs> we'll save my hatred. For later. Oh, the other thing is, Philip Pullman said about the film in retrospect, they were try and the ending specifically, they were trying to have a cliffhanger and a cl an ending at the same time. Like, you know, they wanted a uh, conclusion and a cliffhanger, and you can't do that. And I was like, yeah, they were trying to like have this conclusion, like, oh, Lyra's going to carry on, but like that's the end of the film. And I thought, no, actually, Phil, you're wrong. You're bang wrong. Do you know why? Because your book has exactly that. It has yes. the cliffhanger because she's going off into the sky. What's going to happen next? And Lyra Shaw said, go on to the next one. Start reading Subtle Knife. The second I'd finished it. Mm -hmm. And it also has a conclusion, a proper narrative conclusion for the character. You can do that, Phil. And you did do that. Stop um, making excuses for them. He's so polite. What a gentleman. But on the topic of I want you to get angry, Phil. Come on. And we're going to leave you on the first audio drama I ever attempted. It's old and rough, and it was made in 2010 when I was considering adapting the entirety of his dark materials, since no Subtle Knife movie was forthcoming. So this is the first section, and then a little extra bit with Yorick. The kernel of this idea eventually became the New Century Multiverse, which, of course, owes a great debt of inspiration to Pullman's work. As a special treat to those of you that have seen the movie but are wondering about this ending we're talking about, the last minutes of the first audiobook are at the very end of this show. When you hear them, along with the music I've added, it will be clearer why this would have made for a very different movie experience. 
Between the broken off hopeful end of the movie and where it starts up, Lyra reaches the laboratory of Lord Asriel with Roger and gives her father the alethiometer, believing this is what he needs. As it transpires, he actually needed a child, and she has also brought him Roger. She wakes up later to find them both gone, and chases him across the mountains to a peak where Azriel is attempting via technology to break into a new world. That clip, read by Pullman himself, follows my attempt at audio dramatizing the first few pages. I recommend you read the follow-up to Northern Lights. That second book, The Subtle Knife, is arguably even better. There is some extra material from this show which didn't make the final cut, and that is available on the Patreon right now if you're at the $5 level and above. And a huge thank you to our special $15 sponsors this month who get name-checked. Joel Robinson, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Abel Savard, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia-Abril, Ben Hayes, Kieran Batchelor, and Lorraine Chisholm. Thank you all so much. And your ears aren't deceiving you. Alexander Desplat literally watched the end of Jurassic Park and went, Oh, that's a good tune. And next week we bring you a wonderful Leica movie, also about a very willful girl, Coraline. Uh, I have been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's, School's Out. Out. Part 1. Oxford Lyra and her demon moved through the darkening hall, taking care to keep to one side and out of sight of the kitchen. The three great tables that ran the length of the hall were laid already. She stopped beside the master's chair and flicked the biggest glass gently with a fingernail. The sound rang clearly through the hall. You're not taking this seriously. Behave yourself. Her demon's name was Pantalimon, and he was currently in the form of a moth, a dark brown one, so as not to show up in the darkness of the hall. They're making too much noise in the kitchen. Stop fussing. Lyra darted through the door of the retiring room. Only scholars and their guests were allowed in here, and never females. Happy now? Can we go? Don't be silly. I want to look around. She sat in one of the green leather armchairs and looked at the portraits on the walls. More old scholars, robed, bearded and gloomy. They stared out of their frames in solemn disapproval. Then she heard voices outside the door. Behind the chair! Quick! Has Lord Asriel arrived yet? It was the master. As Lyra held her breath, she saw the servant's demon, a dog like almost all servant's demons, trot in and sit quietly at his feet. No, master. I expect he'll be hungry when he arrives. Show him straight into hall, will you? Very good, master. And you've decanted some of the special Tokai for him? Yes, master, the 1898, as you ordered. His lordship is very partial to that, as I remember. Good, now leave me, please. I did. Now hurry out before the steward comes. Lyra darted to the oak wardrobe, opened it and hid inside, pulling the door shut, just as Wren the butler entered. We're going to have to stay here now. Why don't you listen to me? It's a good thing I didn't. We wouldn't have seen the master put poison in the wine otherwise. Pan, that was a toke he asked the butler about. They're going to kill Lord Asriel. You don't know it's poison. Of course it is. Don't you remember he made the butler leave the room before he did it? 
If it was innocent, it wouldn't have mattered the butler seeing. And I know there's something going on, something political. Servants have been talking about it for days. Pant, we could prevent a murder. I've never heard such nonsense. Pant, you really think it's not poison in that wine? No, I think it is, like you do. And I think it's none of our business. And I think it would be the silliest thing you've ever done in a lifetime of silly things to interfere. It's nothing to do with us. Don't be stupid. I can't sit here and watch them give him poison. Well, come somewhere else, then. You're a coward, Pan. Certainly I am. May I ask what you intend to do? Are you going to leap out and snatch the glass from his trembling fingers? What did you have in mind? I don't have anything in mind, and well you know it. This is what you wanted all the time. You wanted to hide in here and watch. Why didn't I realise that before? All right, I do. Everyone knows they get up to something secret. They have a ritual or something. I just wanted to know what it was. It's none of our business. Hiding and spying is for silly children. Exactly what I knew you'd say. Now stop nagging. The butler trimmed the wick and put another log in the fire, then listened carefully at the hall door before helping himself to a handful of leaf from the smoking mill. He had hardly replaced the lid when the handle of the other door turned, making him jump nervously. Lyra tried not to laugh. The butler hastily stuffed the leaf into his pocket and turned to face the incomer. Lord Ezreal. Good evening, Ren. I arrived too late to dine. I'll wait in here. Shall I let the master know you've arrived, my lord? No harm in that. You might bring me some coffee. Very good, my lord. Lord Azriel's demon, a snow leopard, stood behind him. Are you going to show the projections in here? Yes. It'll create less fuss than moving to the lecture theatre. They'll want to see the specimens, too. I'll send for the porter in a minute. This is a bad time, Stelmaria. You should rest. Yes, yes. I should also change my clothes. There's probably some ancient etiquette that allows them to find me a dozen bottles for coming in here dressed improperly. I should sleep for three days. The fact remains that... Thank you, Ren. Is that the Takai I can see on the table? The master ordered it decanted especially for you, my lord. There are only three dozen bottles left of the 98. All good things pass away. I'll leave the tray here beside me. Oh, and ask the porter to send up the two cases I left in the lodge, would you? Here, my lord? Yes, here, man. And I shall need a screen and a projecting lantern. Also here. Also now. Ren, you're forgetting your place. Don't question me. Just do as I tell you. Very good, my lord. No! Who's there? Lyra! What the hell are you doing? Let go of me and I'll tell you. I'll break your arm first. How dare you come in here? I've just saved your life. What did you say? The wine is poisoned. I saw Master put some powder in it. I came in just to see what the room was like. I know I shouldn't have, but I was going to go out before anyone came in, except that I heard the Master come in and got trapped. The wardrobe was the only place to hide, and I saw him put powder in the wine. If I hadn't... That'll be the porter, back in the wardrobe. If I hear the slightest noise, I'll make you wish you were dead. Come in. I've done a terrible thing. My dear, you're going to have to fight here for Ragnarsson, and you ain't ready. You're tired and hungry in your armors. What terrible thing? I told him when you was coming because I read it on the symbol reader, and he's desperate to be like a person and have a demon, just desperate. So I tricked him into thinking I was your demon, and I was going to desert you and be his instead, but he had to fight you to make it happen. Because otherwise, Yurik did. They'd never let you fight. They were just going to burn you up before you got too close. You tricked. You're for Ragnarsson. Yes, I made him agree that he'd fight you instead of just killing you straight off like an outcast. 
and the winner would be king of bears. I had to do that because... Balakwa? No, no. You are Lyra Silvertongue. To fight him is all I want. But then, as Lord Asriel connected his wires, the aurora blazed all of a sudden into brilliant life. Like the long finger of blinding power that plays between two terminals, except that this was a thousand miles high and ten thousand miles long, dipping, soaring, undulating, glowing, a cataract of glory. He was controlling it, or leading power down from it, for there was a wire running off a huge reel on the sledge, a wire that ran directly upwards to the sky. Down from the dark swooped a raven, and Lyra knew it for a witch demon. A witch was helping Lord Asriel, and she had flown that wire into the heights. And the aurora was blazing again. He was nearly ready. He turned to Roger and beckoned, and Roger helplessly came, shaking his head, begging, crying, but helplessly going forward. No! Run! Lyra cried and hurled herself down the slope at him. Pantalaimon leapt at the snow leopard and snatched Roger's demon from her jaws. In a moment, the snow leopard leapt after him, and Pantalaimon let the other demon go, and both young demons, changing flick, 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 turned and battled with the great spotted beast. She slashed left, right with needle-filled paws, and her snarling roar drowned even Lyra's cries. Both children were fighting her too, or fighting the forms in the turbid air, those dark intentions that came thick and crowding down the streams of dust. And the aurora swayed above its continual surging flicker picking out now this building, now that lake, now that row of palm trees, so close you'd think that you could step from this world to that. Lyra leapt up and seized Roger's hand. She pulled hard, and then they tore away from Lord Asriel and ran, hand in hand, but Roger cried and twisted because his demon was caught again, held fast in the snow leopard's jaws, and Lord Asriel himself was reaching down towards her with a wire, and Lyra knew the heart-convulsing pain of separation and tried to stop, but they couldn't stop. The cliff was sliding away beneath them, an entire shelf of snow sliding inexorably down, the frozen sea a thousand feet below. Lyra! Her heartbeats leaping in anguish with Roger's, tight-clutching hands, his body suddenly limp in hers, and high above, the greatest wonder. At the moment he fell still, the vault of heaven, star-studded, profound, was pierced as if by a spear. A jet of light, a jet of pure energy released like an arrow from a great bow. A great rending, grinding, crunching, tearing sound reached from one end of the universe to the other. There was dry land in the sky. Sunlight! Sunlight shining on the fur of a golden monkey. For the fall of the snow shelf had halted. Perhaps an unseen ledge had broken its fall. And Lyra could see over the trampled snow of the summit, the golden monkey spring out of the air to the side of the leopard and she saw the two demons bristle, wary and powerful. The monkey's tail was erect, the snow leopards swept powerfully from side to side. Then the monkey reached out a tentative paw, the leopard lowered her head with a graceful, sensual acknowledgement. They touched. And when Lyra looked up from them, Mrs. Coulter herself stood there, clasped in Lord Asriel's arms. Light played around them like sparks and beams of intense and barrack power. Lyra, helpless, could only imagine what had happened, Somehow Mrs. Coulter must have crossed that chasm and followed her up here. Her own parents, together, and embracing so passionately, an undreamed-of thing. Her eyes were wide. Roger's body lay in her arms, still, quiet, at rest. 
she heard her parents talking. Her mother said, They'll never allow it. Her father said, Allow it. We've gone beyond being allowed as if we were children. I've made it possible for anyone to cross if they wish. They'll forbid it. They'll seal it off and excommunicate anyone who tries. Too many people will want to. They won't be able to prevent them. This will mean the end of the church, Marisa, the end of the magisterium, the end of all those centuries of darkness. Look at that light up there. That's the sun of another world. Feel the warmth of it on your skin. Now. They are stronger than anyone, Asriel. You don't know. I don't know. I. No one in the world knows better than I how strong the church is. But it isn't strong enough for this. The dust will change everything anyway. There's no stopping it now. Is that what you wanted? To choke us and kill us all with sin and darkness? I wanted to break out, Marisa. And I have. Look. Look at the palm trees waving on the shore. Can you feel that wind? A wind from another world. Feel it on your hair, on your face. Lord Asriel pushed back Mrs. Coulter's hood and turned her head to the sky, running his hands through her hair. Lyra watched breathless, not daring to move a muscle. The woman clung to Lord Asriel as if she were dizzy and shook her head, distressed. No. No, they're coming, Asriel. They know where I've gone. Then come with me, away and out of this world. I daren't. You dare not. Your child would come. Your child would dare anything and shame her mother. Then take her and welcome. She's more yours than mine, Asriel. Not so. You took her in. You tried to mould her. You wanted her then. She was too coarse, too stubborn. I'd left it too late. But where is she now? I followed her footsteps. You want her still? Twice you've tried to hold her and twice she's got away. If I were her, I'd run and keep on running sooner than give you a third chance. His hands, still clasping her head, tensed suddenly and drew her towards him in a passionate kiss. Lyra thought it seemed more like cruelty than love and looked at their demons to see a strange sight. The snow leopard tense, crouching with her claws just pressing in the golden monkey's flesh, and the monkey relaxed, blissful, swooning on the snow. Mrs. Coulter pulled fiercely back from the kiss and said, No, Azrael, my place is in this world, not that. Come with me. Come and work with me. We couldn't work together, you and I. No. You and I could take the universe to pieces and put it together again, Marisa. We could find the source of dust and stifle it forever. And you'd like to be part of that great work? Don't lie to me about it. Lie about everything else. Lie about the ablation board. Lie about your lovers. Yes, I know about Boreal, and I care nothing. Lie about the church. Lie about the child, even. But don't lie about what you truly want. And their mouths were fastened together with a powerful greed. Their demons were playing fiercely. The snow leopard rolled over on her back, and the monkey raked his claws in the soft fur of her neck, and she growled a deep rumble of pleasure. If I don't come... You'll try and destroy me, said Mrs. Coulter, breaking away. Why should I want to destroy you? He said, laughing, with the light of the other world shining around his head. Come with me, work with me, and I'll care whether you live or die. Stay here, and you lose my interest at once. Don't flatter yourself that I'd give you a second's thought. Now, stay and work your mischief in this world, or come with me. Mrs. Coulter hesitated. Her eyes closed. She seemed to sway as if she were fainting. But she kept her balance and opened her eyes again with an infinite beautiful sadness in them. No, she said. No. 
their demons were apart again. Lord Asriel reached down and curled his strong fingers into the snow leopard's fur. Then he turned his back and walked away without another word. The golden monkey leapt into Mrs. Coulter's arms, making little sounds of distress, reaching out to the snow leopard as she paced away, and Mrs. Coulter's face was a mask of tears. Ira could see them glinting. They were real. Then her mother turned, shaking with silent sobs, and moved down the mountain and out of Lyra's sight. Lyra watched her coldly, and then looked up towards the sky. Such a vault of wonders she had never seen. The city, hanging there so empty and silent, looked new-made, waiting to be occupied, or asleep, waiting to be woken. The sun of that world was shining into this, making Lyra's hands golden, melting the ice on Roger's wolf-skin hood, making his pale cheeks transparent, glistening in his open, sightless eyes. She felt wrenched apart with unhappiness, and with anger, too. She could have killed her father. If she could have torn out his heart, she would have done so there and then for what he'd done to Roger. And to her, tricking her. How dare he! She was still holding Roger's body. Pantalaimon was saying something, but her mind was ablaze, and she didn't hear until he pressed his wildcat claws into the back of her hand to make her. She blinked. What? What? Dust! What are you talking about? Dust! He's going to find the source of dust and destroy it, isn't he? That's what he said. And the oblation board? And the church and Bolvanger and Mrs. Coulter and all? They want to destroy it too, don't they? Yeah. Or stop it affecting people. Why? Because if they all think dust is bad, it must be good. She didn't speak. A little hiccup of excitement leapt in her chest. Pantalaimon went on. We've heard them all talk about dust, and they're so afraid of it. And you know what? We believed them. Even though we could see that what they were doing was wicked and evil and wrong, we thought dust must be bad too, because they were grown up, and they said so. But what if it isn't? What if it's... Yeah, what if it's really good? She looked at him and saw his green wildcat eyes ablaze with her own excitement. She felt dizzy as if the whole world were turning beneath her. If dust were a good thing, if it were to be sought and welcomed and cherished... We could look for it too, Pan. That was what he wanted to hear. We could get to it before he does, and... The enormousness of the task silenced them. Lyra looked up at the blazing sky. She was aware of how small they were, she and her demon, in comparison with the majesty and vastness of the universe, and of how little they knew in comparison with the profound mysteries above them. We could... We came all this way, didn't we? We could do it. We got it wrong, though, Pan. We got it all wrong about Roger. We thought we were helping him. She choked and kissed Roger's still face clumsily several times. We got it wrong. Next time we'll check everything and ask all the questions we can think of, then we'll do better next time. And we'd be alone. Yorick Bernison couldn't follow us and help, nor could Far Decorum or Serafina Pecola. All these scores be or no one. Just us, then. Don't matter. We're not alone, anyway. Not like... She knew he meant not like Tony Macarios. Not like those poor lost demons at Bolvanger. We're still one being. Both of us are one. And we've got the alethiometer. Yeah. I reckon we've got to do it, Pan. We'll go up there and we'll search for dust. And when we've found it, we'll know what to do. Roger's body lay still in her arms. She let him down gently. And we'll do it. She turned away. 
Behind them lay pain and death and fear. Ahead of them lay doubt and danger and fathomless mysteries. But they weren't alone. So Lyra and her demon turned away from the world they were born in and looked towards the sun and walked into the sky. <laughs>